Hi, this is William Ramsey. Welcome to William Ramsey Investigates. On tonight's show, I'm a very special guest who just published a new book. His name is Jason Horsley. I've had a couple of interviews with him in the past. His new book is titled The Vice of Kings, How Socialism, Occultism, and the Sexual Revolution Engineered a Culture of Abuse. It's a two-hour discussion. This is the first hour. Both hours can be found on my YouTube channel at William Ramsey Investigates. Thank you for listening. Hi, this is William Ramsey. Welcome to William Ramsey Investigates. On tonight's show, I have a very special guest, a returning guest. His name is Jason Horsley. He's just published a book titled The Vice of Kings, and it will be the third time he has been on my show. We've done other shows in the past regarding his other books, uh, the titles of which we did a show about John DeRuiter, who was a uh, kind of mystical guy up in, he was in Canada. And uh, let's see, Jason. I had that link ready. Now I don't have oh, it. The title of the book is Dark Oasis, a Self-Made Messiah Unveiled. So we did an interview on that. We also talked last year, 2018, about his published book, Prisoner of Infinity, UFOs, Social Engineering, and the Psych Psychology of Fragmentation. And just this year, published on Amazon, January 1st, is again, The Vice of Kings, How Socialism, Occultism, and the sexual revolution engineered a culture of abuse. So, Jason Horsley, welcome to the show. Thanks, Bill. Good to be back. Awesome. Thanks for being here. A great book, by the way. Really enjoyed it. Loved it. Another one of uh, your uh, of your many now many great books. And uh, maybe we can just get started about how you kind of conceptualized this book and where the kind of uh, seed of, of writing this book came from. Well, there were two C's really. I mean, as you know, there's two parts to the book and <clears throat> hopefully they do come together and they make a coherent whole, but they are quite separate at the same time. And the first first part, I'll call it Yorkshire, is, is <clears throat> based on investigations into my family history and how that led me into uh, a whole can of worms relating to the Fabian Society and social psychosocial psychosexual engineering so try and coin new terms there because it's a mishmash of these different areas of research uh, and uh, <clears throat> social manipulations and um, uh, sort of uh, centering around uh, as well as my own family history you know, Jimmy Stavel as a kind of microchipped eel if you will that you know, wherever Jimmy Savile goes, you know that you're going to encounter these networks of power because he was so closely affiliated with that. And, of course, he was he's now recognized as a, a prolific child sexual abuser and other things. So so that's, that was the main focus there. I was, and that was an ongoing thing for me over the past several years, this growing interest gotcha. in uh, child sexual abuse. And then part two uh was seeded actually by just a it was just a, a thread at the at the uh, the form rigorous intuition that I called the Crowley joke which is now the, the title of part two of the book based uh, it was about that this supposed joke that Crowley made in magic theory and practice about how he sacrificed a child uh, at regular intervals for, for 25 years. I forget the exact specifics of it, but it came out at thousands and thousands of supposed child sacrifices. And, and uh, alleged, you know, allegedly 
the official version of that was that he was just joking and he was talking about masturbation. And uh, so I, so I, I just brought that up as an example of a, a tip of an iceberg around Crowley and occultism, and juxtaposing with Jimmy Savile's tendency, which became known after the truth came out after he died, that he would make jokes about what he was doing as a way to give a kind of a nudge and a wink to the people who knew and to uh, in a certain sense conceal what he was doing to those who didn't via a kind of double bluff, I suppose. If, if he were really doing such things, he certainly wouldn't be joking about it. But it turned out he was doing them and he was joking about them. And I think I discovered the same about Crowley, maybe not literally in terms of child sacrifice. I can't, I didn't find any evidence of that, but certainly the equivalent in terms of atrocities that he, he, he just concealed with, with this supposedly mischievous, malevolent humor. So anyway, that, that, that was roughly an inception of these these two investigations that I then brought together for Vice of Kings when it came time to make it into a book. And you had you had uh, kind of uncovered quite a few quotes and references that Crowley made, not just that kind of famous quote that he, he had in Magic and Theory and Practice, but also there was one from the Magical Record of the Beast of which you uh, referenced, which was really a note that he was taught in... Uh, the Abbey of Philema, uh, well, a note between him and his, he had two paramours at that time, right around 1923, uh, which are, uh, uh, Hersig was one of the other, one of the names in the, uh, uh, Nanette Shumway. And uh, maybe I can just say in the outright that there's some very disturbing content we'll probably be talking about. So if people are sensitive that, to that or are uncomfortable with, I mean, really disturbing to topics like child sacrifice, child abuse of the worst sort. You know, I do not recommend you listen or uh, definitely do not listen to this discussion in the presence of children or anything like that. So, but getting back to that statement that you had, that you had had discovered, which was, uh, <clears throat> you know, something that maybe we should use as a reference port for this kind of uh, theme that you have going through your book which is this child, this abuse. But maybe we can get that. That's really the second part of the book. I think maybe we should start with uh, not just the inception of the book, but how you kind of couched your investigation from your own past, which, you know, you're growing up in Yorkshire, Yorkshire but also being the grandson of really a, a, a British business magnate and, how, and his connections. Maybe you can talk a little bit about that. Right, well, um, so I didn't know very much about the kind of world my grandfather was embedded in <clears throat> while I was growing up. I, I just saw that, you know, the surface, the tip of the iceberg. Uh, I knew he was involved in the peace movement. I knew he was self-identified as a socialist. I knew he hobnobbed with celebrities. I didn't know anything about his affiliation with the Fabian Society. That would not have meant anything to me growing up. Um, obviously I knew he was a businessman, uh, <clears throat> though, you know, my father had taken over the reins pretty much by the time I came along. Uh, you know, I remember, I mean, one of his claims to fame, although he didn't 
I mean, he, he, he didn't, actually he de-emphasized his social influence in many ways. In other ways, he seemed like he was, he was, he was quite proud of it and he was a bit of a name dropper and things of that sort. But in other ways, it turns out that he de-emphasized or he downplayed it. Um, but one of the examples of how influential I think he was, was the, the CND, the Campaign for Nuclear Disarmament, was a was an early peace movement in the fifties, uh, in the sixties in Britain. Maybe it was started in the sixties actually, but very early sixties, if so. And uh, uh, the symbol for the campaign for nuclear disarmament is the uh, well. It's now on Craigslist. Is now they've they've kind of co-opted it, but that three pronged thing, the peace symbol. Everybody knows it still, even from the sixties, right? That was actually just co-designed by my grandfather. Interesting. Um, and um, his name was Alec Corsley, correct, Alec? Yeah, Alec Corsley, and he was born of seemingly working-class roots. But uh, I'm not so sure I believe that anymore. He went to Oxford and he went to Nigeria as a district officer. And um, well, the more I looked into him, the more. Uh, I saw how he was rubbing shoulders with the very elite, the British elite, including a uh, chairman of the Bank of England and somebody who went on to he host the Bilderberg meetings in the early days of the Bilderberg. So, I mean, definitely high-powered players. And um, <clears throat> that was all quite surprising to me to, to realize just how uh, connected he had been. And as I say, I just picked up... Uh, a very superficial thing here but with the example the cnd thing like i was an early proponent of of, of cnd and peace and i would wear the cnd badge i didn't even know that he designed it you think he would have said oh i had a hand in that but the reason i wore it was that when he saw me wearing it my grandfather would give me a pound and i was a very mercenary kid and <clears throat> So I just, I, you know, I had that uh, mercenary incentive to to pose as a peacenik, even though I didn't really feel that strongly about it. But I would accept the bribes from my grandfather. And, you know, looking back, it does seem like a kind of microcosm that he would um, be that cynical and that I would about the whole thing. And I now think that the peace movement uh, was was partially, if not primarily, designed by social engineers as a way to neutralize real revolt of the working class that would be violent and that would disrupt things because, you know, they could obviously they want the trains to be running on time and so on and so forth. They don't want the working class up in arms and they certainly don't want them causing rioting and stuff, which can cost, you know, a lot in damages. Right. So I think that my grandfather was part of a social engineering program of the aristocracy which included Bertrand Russell who's a friend of Gandhi and Gandhi was was a you know a pioneer of this uh, passive or peaceful resistance thing uh, uh, deliberately in order to co-opt and redirect any kind of uprisings in Britain during that time and redirect them down more peaceful channels so so you know it seemed like a benevolent thing and in some ways you could say it is but you can also see how it was serving the interests of the ruling class. And I think that was the case with my grandfather throughout. Uh, 
I don't know how consciously is the thing. I don't know how Machiavellian a character he was and how much he himself was duped. In the case of my father, I think he was very much duped. But in the case of my grandfather, I suspect he was more conscious. Of more conscious. He was very well educated, educated at Oxford, correct? So he yeah. kind of uh, was within that orbit of all those kind of uh, the highest intellectual currents of the country, right? The UK? Yeah, and he was, very, he was a proud intellectual. My father was too, but my father, he didn't drop out of Oxford, but he, he just got a third. He just, you know, he just he coasted winged. through. <clears throat> yeah, he didn't really care about it, but he was involved in peace movements. He would march to Alderston, I think that's the word, the name of it. Um, uh, so as a young man, he was definitely involved in peace movements, and he did adopt my father, his father's values including, yes, this intellectualism and the, the exaggerated respect for the in, inter, intellectual pursuits and the arts and stuff. Um, but I think that sets the stage from kind of what you grew up in, which was the kind of socialistic, <clears throat> liberal, kind of, uh, kind of maybe the upper class view of those, those, those views in the UK. Would you agree with that? That if the upper class, they... they Still didn't really, they adhered to those values, but they really didn't mix maybe with as much as, they, they weren't as cohesive uh, across class boundaries. Would you agree with that? Well, no, of course not. And generally aristocracy isn't, you know, isn't expected to mingle with the working class. But in my case, we, it wasn't an aristocracy. I call it a closet aristocracy. Um, and that might be putting it too boldly. I'm sure that surviving family members would, 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 scoff at that or, or maybe they're lying i don't know but certainly there was an elitism in my family and great wealth and power and they all lived in mansions and i grew up in a mansion um so you know and when people at school or people asked you know or the teacher asked who who which class do people identify with almost everyone in my class said middle class i think everyone and i said upper class <clears throat> interesting but that would have that would have upset my father probably, or he would have denied and said, we're not upper class. They definitely pretended to be middle or at least upper middle class. And they definitely uh, espoused socialist values, which was sympathy for the common man, for the working man. But no, they didn't mingle. Uh, none of the people that I knew growing up who hung out with my father or my grandfather, well, I shouldn't say none, but probably might've been a few exceptions in terms of people that they worked with as a, a dairy in a food business right. a little bit of an overlap there but generally speaking it was all working class and yes intelligentsia and there was definitely uh elitism was was the norm growing up i inherited an elitist view i considered ordinary people common people to be beneath me kind of like commoners, commoners mentality, kind of yeah. British class system. And your your grandfather, Alex, started Northern Dairy, and yeah. then your father ran that uh, and kind of uh, the company went public as Northern Foods, right? It's really a, a food conglomerate. It, it, it was a gradual thing. I mean, it went public before it became Northern Foods. It started as a private dairy and then went public at the time of the Suez crisis, um, which may not be coincidental. Uh, and, and by that time, my, my grandfather was clearly very connected with, as I say, these high power, high power political, uh, social engineering type characters. And um, 
there's no doubt that the food industry or the food production itself is very central to geopolitics. How could it not be, right? Um, but this is certainly something that never occurred to me until I started looking at my past through this lens, that, um, yeah, the ascent of northern food, northern dairies and its transformation into northern food under my father and then later, and sort of simultaneously and later, Chris Haskins, who was my father's brother-in-law, who later went on to be the rural Tsar for Tony Blair, the Prime Minister of Britain, and he's now a he's a, he's now a lord. Um, that yeah, that all of that went parallel with northern foods becoming more and more openly uh, connected to, I would say, geopolitical movements. Uh, uh, right. So, albeit not overtly. I mean, they were they were always just a corporation. They never politically platformed. But I think you can see the way in which corporations. Uh, or that corporation is an example of how government and corporations work together. Right. But I guess what I'm trying to say is like that background was where this kind of idea of the Fabian socialists gestated really was kind of this intellectual upper class of which Alec was kind of rotating, uh, you know, grouped with. And, you know, can you describe how the Fabians got their name and how what what the ideas of Fabian socialism, the basic ideas were? Uh, well, the latter is quite difficult because they're they're symbols of wolf in sheep's clothing. So they have <laughs> they have an open philosophy that they espouse, and then they have the wolf that's hidden inside it, and it's quite hard to untangle them. And the former, can, in simple terms of how they got the name, that was Fab Emperor, uh, Emperor Fabius. Or the general, I beg your pardon, wasn't an emperor, and that was a military strategy of this Roman general in terms of how to conquer, conquer and colonize other, other um, communities, other cultures, uh, incrementally through, <clears throat> uh, you know, slow pressure terrorist tactics. I think he was an early example of the use of terror tactics, also starving out the enemy, infiltration, and so on, and. Um, Anyway, but the basic idea of Fabian was to transform society incrementally through the apply through implement implementation and pressure, and I would say through um, deep social, psychosocial, and psychosexual uh, study uh, of of individuals and groups, and um, then the application of those principles towards long-term goals, always under the guise of a benevolent philanthropic right. push. So, right. so one example I give in the in the book, as you read, is is Bertrand Russell, although who who although I don't think he self-identified as a Fabian, he was definitely on the same team in terms of you know contributing to these agendas, and he wrote quite a bunch of books, and he's known to this day as a humanitarian as a philosopher, albeit an atheist philosopher, but one who is a humanistic kind of philosopher. Um, but if you look at some of his work, such as the scientific outlook, uh, which I analyze in the book, um, you can see that under the guise of writing a cautionary analysis of where society might be going if we don't watch out, he's basically presented a blueprint for how to uh, direct society in order to you know attain these ends a blueprint for a future society that ostensibly he's warning 
the reader about. And I think it's, I used it because I think it's a very good example of this wolf in sheep's clothing policy that a book like that, I believe, was written with two audiences in mind. One was the intelligentsia who would understand that he was one of them and he was merely out, he was out laying out some of the primary principles of psychosocial engineering um, <clears throat> in, a, in order to build slowly towards this future society. And then the second audience was the, the you know, the masses who would, most of them wouldn't read Bertrand Russell, but still, you know, the students and whatnot who weren't part of the elite, uh, who would, who would take it as a cautionary tale. Right. What was the title of that book again? A Scientific Outlook. A Scientific Outlook. That's right. Yeah. So, um, yeah, that's one example of that. The, the, the Fabianism, uh, I think, yeah, and you kind of, you, you put some uh, interesting quotes from John Taylor Gatto's book uh, that are interspersed throughout the beginning of those chapters that describes that even American educational systems are Fabian. I mean, he references that kind of Fabian ideal through the American uh, educational system, right? Right, and I think it's quite topical now because of, I'm sure you're aware of all the controversy around universities in the U.S. and Canada, and how uh, how, how much they they seem to have um, betrayed the principles of of good education and be more about you know ideological indoctrination and even you know the humanities and the sciences are all being undermined by ideological agendas such as transgenderism and others, and that. This is in one of the principles of Fabianism that I mentioned in the book, which is the weaponization of university professors. And it's also a good example of how Fabians work. They infiltrate positions of influence within society with their own agendas, and then they use those positions to uh, having infiltrated the institution to then infiltrate the, the, the policies or, or shape and influence the policies and the ideologies and the methodologies of a given institution towards these hidden ends of Fabianism, which uh, one of them could be summed up as mm, destabilizing society, uh, fracturing the family unit uh, in order to be able to remold society along more overtly scientific uh, uh, lines, such as outlined in Aldous Huxley's Brave New World. I mean, that's a very simplified blueprint, I think. Right, but I mean, I think that that's an interesting strain within the kind of Fabian socialist is that there is a scientific, there is a goal of a scientific reordering of society, but not necessarily uh, as as beneficial to all segments of that society, right? Some of these, uh, you wrote about the entitlements as a Fabian insertion into the social fabric, which most people on the surface think is beneficial, but actually, uh, you know, decreases incentive and initiative, right? So a lot. Yeah, yeah that's right. <clears throat> well, I think it's, I think it's premised on the belief that the intelligentsia, so to speak, uh, I mean, that they, they see themselves as inherently intrinsically different to and superior to the vast mass of humanity. And so the, many of these agendas are directed consciously towards accentuating that split and um, directing more and more power and uh, prestige and advancement, advantage and advancement to their own cliques of the elite. Uh, 
and stripping the rest of the mass uh, of the little that they, they, they do have of autonomy, of discernment, of intelligence, you know, of health. And uh, towards a bifurcation, as is outlined in H.G. Wells' The Time Machine, isn't it? And he was also a Fabian for a period where you have the Eloy and the Morlocks. Right. Uh, I think that, that uh, and, and Bertrand Russell writes about this also in the scientific outlook. By the way, I, I make the distinction here between scientific and scientistic, that essentially the use of scientific data and scientific methods as a means to indoctrinate um, and with an ideological thrust in this case uh, is really scientism because it's not simply about finding out the truth and then adhering to it. It's about, um, well, I suppose it's, it's a selective use of, of, of knowledge, isn't it, in right. order to control. Right, and claim it's science by, by manipulating people or... Uh you know, putting those things out. Yeah. I thought what was of particular interest, the thing that uh, when you referenced that David Rockefeller did his senior thesis on Fabian socialism at Harvard titled destitution through Fabian eyes. And it's this idea through the Fabians, as you talked about as the Jesuits of socialism, that they're co-opting both sides of the political spectrum. So they're trying to get in. And uh, I found that to be very interesting because you can kind of see the modern political, you know, post-50s, post-World War II, modern political uh, environment is really being dictated by the Rockefellers. All these people are associated with the Rockefellers, both the left and the right, whether it's Bill Clinton or the Bush family. It's pretty remarkable. Yeah, yeah, it is remarkable how many how many roads lead to the Rockefellers, isn't it? Yes. I mean, it's, it's pretty, I mean, it goes all the way to 9-11, all through all that stuff. But uh, maybe we can talk about John Maynard Keynes Havelock Ellis, probably names, probably not, people might have heard of Keynes, John Maynard Keynes, but not Havelock Ellis, and how this kind of set the groundwork for your later inquiry into child sexual abuse. Yeah, yeah, I mean, Ellis, uh, I, I, did, I hadn't really heard of Havelock Ellis, barely, but um, most people have heard, of Al, have heard of Alfred Kinsey, I think, uh, you know, was famously wrote these books on uh, male and female and child sexuality in probably the late 50s. But anyway, it's attributed to the sexual revolution is attributed, accredited to Kinsey and his supposed scientific discoveries. Again, an example of scientism rather than science because Kinsey, uh, his methods were not just, uh, uh, you know, debatable they were absolutely unethical they were even criminal yeah and then the way and they were never they were never analyzed by a third party either he never gave his research up to third party you know in, inquiry so that was another i mean among his other crew very criminal acts but yeah kinsey yeah. Was something else so and, and it's certainly <clears throat> it's a lot easier to see with kinsey uh, how, how his supposed findings his presentations you know, the data that he presented and the publications he released were used for social engineering purposes in order to kickstart the sexual revolution. With, with Ellis, it's, he's much less known, and it was at a much earlier phase. He was one of the founding Fabians who were talking in the 1880s um, when he was doing his re research. He was certainly ahead of his time. Uh, he coined the term homos homosexual uh, 
I'm not quite sure about pedophile, but certainly this would have been in the early days of, you know, uh, defining or categorizing these orientations, we have to call them now. Um, and uh, he, he was, I mean, as you can imagine, and as with Kinsey, somebody who's a sexologist, who's a researcher into human sexual behavior, uh, is, well, he was particularly interested in what was considered to be human perversion. Because this is the tail end of the Victorian era, you know, with all of that moral and sexual repression. At least that's how we're, you know, led to think now. Yeah. Um, some of it was just hygiene and you know, conscientiousness and, and upstanding values, of course. But there definitely was an element of repression. There's no doubt about that, and uh, all kinds of other debatable attitudes. And somebody like Ellis, of course, he has to. Um, as did Freud, he has to push against that tide and um, be willing to be scientific or objective and just look at human sexuality in all its forms without making value judgments. But actually he, like Kinsey, and maybe it's to do with a predilection for the subject matter, he went to the other extreme and he developed the attitude and the, I'd say the philosophy, even though he's not really known for this as a philosophy, just an opinion, but still, I think it is a philosophical position that human sexual perversion is an expression of freedom of the human spirit. And whether he genuinely believed that or whether it was understood that this is a way to dissolve boundaries within society and thereby uh, destabilize the society and undermine the, the family unit, because of course it does. If you have you know, a man and a woman and children, and the, sex, the sexual revolution, and then it's all about free love. Well, the intimacy, the loyalty, the fidelity, all these things are lost, uh, supposedly in, in the interests of the freedom, self-expression, the freedom, freedom, just freedom of all the yes. varieties, right? As though <clears throat> somehow just, you know, being in a more ordinary, conventional uh, family relationship is... is you know, restricting of the life force. Well, it might be, but it isn't necessarily. And, and right. Crowley would say there is no sin but restriction, right? So you could see Havelock Alice as an ideological precursor to Crowley's ideas. Although, absolutely. It, yeah. yeah. So, um, and you could also say that this was an idea whose time has come, that it was something growing in the collective psyche as perhaps, you know, a reaction against repression. When, when there's too much repression, as we know in our own lives, there's a corresponding kickback, and then we push you know, too far in the other direction. The pendulum swings back, yeah. Right. And, so, and that can be understood for social engineering purposes, as I've talked about maybe even with you on previous occasions. Yes, if you want a sexual revolution, well, first repress people so that, that energy is just dying for, you know, to come out. But right. by the same token, if you want a, a clamp down and you know, to, to lay the groundwork for a very oppressive society, create a sexual revolution. And Interesting. It, it right, there's no 60s without the 50s, I would say, right? The 60s were a revol uh, revolution against the 50s, kind of straight-laced stuff. That's right. And then, the, then there were the 80s, which were very oppressive in their way, and, of course, AIDS mm. didn't come out of nowhere. No? Right. But uh, I think Havelock Ellis really, like the branches of in his influence, you write about... John Maynard Keynes and also Nabokov. So you can see Havelock Ellis as this precursor to Lolita 
and yeah. you know that whole that whole thing. But what what uh, talk about how Havelock Ellis influenced John Maynard Keynes and why Keynes is important? Well, I'm not. I don't feel very qualified there, Bill. Even though it's in my book, um, because uh, economics is not my strong suit. Um, so yeah, I mean, I I pr prefer to go back to the Nabokov thing because okay, I feel more it. more qualified there because it's the area of the arts. So you know, I read Lolita myself. I was in my twenties, and of course, I saw the Kubrick movie. Um, and then there was a later movie with Jeremy Irons, and and Lolita has entered the vernacular. So I think it's a, I think it's a good example. And there are university studies around the sexual child with Lolita as a key text, and and this all came on the heels of Freud, not just Alice, but Freud, about you know that children are sexual, uh, as again a counterposition or reaction against the Victorian view, which kind of erased children completely, never mind allowing them they were sexual beings, they weren't allowed to be human beings. And so I think Freud overcompensated for that by saying, well, children do exist, they do have libido, so they can have sexual responses. And But then that became something quite distorted via Alice, via Nabokov, Lolita, that a, a child is a sexual being in the sense that a child can have sexual desire as opposed to sexual responses, which is something very different. And this is like what Kinsey did. He he took children and he he sexually abused them. He sexually interfered with them. And of course they had responses. And not only that, I mean, not only did he force responses out of them, but he, he misinterpreted probably deliberately. If they were crying and panting, he'd said that was a sexual response as opposed to you know, a response of, of grief. Fear and terror, trauma, right. right. Just exactly. absolute terror. And, they, I mean, we can get into the details of his experiments, but they are, like, uh, Nazi-level, terrifying, non-consensual abuse of infants, really. It's really infant abuse, which, uh, I mean, I don't know what the term is, in, uh, infant abuse or something like that. But, uh, yeah, Lulita is an interesting point because I've, I've been reading – some of the inside stuff about Kubrick, who uh, was pals with uh, uh, Arthur Clarke. Both of them worked on 2001, but both of them have a pedophile history. Arthur C. Clarke's was very obvious and written about in British, uh, British journalism. It was pretty much suppressed, but he was in Ceylon, now Sri Lanka, having a ping pong. He actually financed a ping pong place where he would then find boys and pay them money. And there's a ping pong thing within Lolita and Kubrick apparently was having sex with the Lolita girl that he, he uh, was abusing her. That's how she got the role. And that that's why these themes of pedophilia go from Lolita to eyes wide shut. So the end of eyes wide shut and all this other stuff. And there's yeah. actually a hint of pedophilia of abuse of sexual abuse in the shining that, yeah. uh, the, the father was sexually abusing the boy, not just broke his arm, but there was a hint of like something worse. Uh, uh, I, so where did you hear that about Kubrick and the... Uh, Crazy like, Days and Nights. Violence. Crazy Days and Nights reported him as having a very extensive uh, child porn collection and that he was, he, was a, he was a pedophile. I can send you the link. And, you know, I mean, granted, you got to take that with a grain of salt, but you can see the, the current of that issue suffuse and go through Kubrick, you know?
So. Uh, well, I'd definitely be interested in that. Crazy Days and Nights does seem a more credible source than others in terms of being an insider. So yeah, do send me the link. I do want to point out, as I do in Vice of Kings, that there's a danger. Uh, again, it's a bit like the pendulum, but it's also part of the social engineering trap, I think, around pedophilia, which is there's a danger of using the term too loosely. So in the case of Clark, he may have been a pedophile, but he was technically what we know was a, he was a pederast. Which pederast. Is, okay. He had sex with 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 young boys or whatever. It's difficult the terminology, but as in probably uh, probably around twelve, thirteen, fourteen. So I think technically that's a hebephile or a pederast. And I think it is important to make this distinction because, as you know, we live in a weird culture in which, on the one hand, there's more and more defense of and normalization of sex with children and on the other hand the hysteria and the the hatred and the rage and the indignation uh continues you know unabated and uh, and i think the two actually feed into each other uh, and they they it, it's only possible because we're not it's such a difficult subject and most people don't really want to look at it closely and they can't look at it dispassionately uh, right, it's it's a very difficult subject. Can you see this uh, this yeah. post that I put on so we can read it? I think yeah. it's possible I may have found a director who's even worse than Oscar-winning A-list director that has been in the space frequently, or Woody Allen, the director of which I'm speaking is an Oscar winner, not for what you might think. It's shockingly, actually, does not have more actual Oscar wins. He raped three tweens during a casting process and gave the role to the tween he said was the one who was the best in bed. He later ordered her to sleep with a much, much older foreign co-star of the movie who went on to have an A-list career. The director kept her around for a couple of years under the guise of getting her more roles, but the real reason was he could send her out to find other tweens and early teens to bring back to his place where he would get them drunk or slip them drugs and then rape them. He often filmed these rapes and would film the actress with the other tween and teen females. In the movie for which is most famous, he had friends of one of his children come to the set with a child. All the friends were probably no older than seven or eight, he molested a dozen of them, at least during the filming of the movie, and filmed many of them. When he died, there were hundreds of hours of footage, which were some of the most extreme versions of child porn anywhere. Stanley Kubrick, Peter Sellers. So which one's Peter Sellers in there? Who, what's the reference? Uh, to wasn't Peter? Sellers in um, Lolita? Maybe he wasn't. He, he was, was, yeah. Oh. But, but is that the foreign... But that can't be the foreign-born co-star, can it? Because Sellers was... Well, Sellers was English, so yeah. maybe it is. But I don't know. Well, who was Humbert Humbert? That was, what was his name? Was that it? was James Mason. James but he, Mason. Was already, he was already an A-lister. Maybe it is a reference to Sellers. Okay, yeah. I mean, that's Gosh. what they said. So, yeah, that's pretty disturbing. So, I mean, then things become, you see that Arthur Clark and Kubrick are, are peas in a pod, right? Both of these guys have this, and hmm. super influential, right? Both Kubrick and, and Arthur Clark are these pedophiles pedophile, pederast, whatever, and influencing social engineering this, the culture through all their films and everything. I, I certainly think that Kubrick was a social engineer, yeah. Well, anyway, you slice it. I mean, and it's not, you know, somebody who doesn't get known as the world's greatest filmmaker and, uh, without uh, obviously having a great deal of influence but also a great deal of power. Um, so you can trace Havelock Ellis through Navikov through Kubrick, you know, so you can go back to these British, you know, uh, sex, really the, or, or the pre-Kinsey sexologist in Havelock Ellis. It's pretty amazing. Yes. Yeah. yeah. And I think, 
the reason I wanted to linger on uh, Nabokov and Lolita is, is that I think possibly it's because a lot of the Fabians were artists, the writers, George Bernard Shaw, the most famous H.G. Wells. Nabokov, as far as I know, wasn't a Fabian, but uh, Lolita was massively influential. And it seems to me that that may be uh, an example of how the Fabian society or social engineers in general, how they operate in terms of they do the research, um, they discover the the data you know they collect the data that they they figure that they can use and implement in society they determine a, a method in order to uh, use that knowledge for the desired end and then they they look for a public figure somebody who can be made a very powerful influential figure um, to do the to create the delivery device in this case, Lolita. Like if you think about Lolita, it even, as I said, brought a word into the language. It kind of opened up the collective psyche to this idea of the sexualized child. Okay, Lolita wasn't a total child. She was 12, no? But the main thing about Lolita was she was more of the seducer than the seduced. In the book, right. In the book. Right, that's what yes. it's portrayed. Yeah, yeah I mean... Yeah, I mean, but still, it's still like uh, it's still scandalous. It's still pedophilia, right? Well, I mean, it's it's still uh, trauma. It still generates trauma, and it it's. I mean, it's as I say, it's it's, it's very complex. The whole thing, but um, you know, when I grew up, the Lolita, it, it, it's a sexual. Idea. I mean, I didn't think this book is about a child who's being abused, and there's a you know that it's about trauma and it's a tragedy, grooming and all that stuff, right? Uh, yeah, and it certainly didn't. There was no indication it was about you know deeply embedded child trafficking and child pornography and systematized organized ritual abuse and all the world that you and I are familiar with and that I write about in Vice of Kings. It was completely taken out of that context, and the context that somehow it fitted into was more of a pornographic one in which children are uh, potentially sexual beings and very erotic. So the term Lolita actually became, you know, what you call a sexy promiscuous girl. It's a turn on. If somebody's a Lolita, that, uh, that, you know, there's something attractive and appealing about that. So, which, so didn't, think, which didn't exist before, right? Didn't exist before Nabokov. Well, no, Did no. It? I mean, it, it might have existed in society, but it wasn't. It wasn't being normalized. Spilled into a name, right? Gotcha. gotcha. It wasn't being normalized. Yeah, and the thing about the Lolita, of course, is it was also a, a key book, as was D. H. Lawrence's work, uh, Lady Chelsea's Lover, and actually George Bernard Shaw with Pygmalion, uh, a book that uh, or a work that pushed the envelope in terms of censorship, because. Right. Yeah, because the Lolita was censored, right? Wasn't it one of the more heavily censored books? Yeah, I think Lolita, like Lady Cecily Lover, was there was an attempt to suppress it and ban it, and because it was art, because it was literature, then the laws about what's acceptable in society uh, had to be changed in order to make room for this great literary work. The same with George Bernard Shaw, Pygmalion. He just used the word bloody, so it seems very quaint to us now. Uh, Lady Chatterley's lover, they use the word fuck and the sex scenes and so on. So I think, yeah, in terms of Fabian permeators, as they call themselves, if you imagine somebody who's part of a, a covert organization that has this long-term agenda and a philosophy and 
has a literary talent and then uh, goes to work to create a work that will be a delivery device for certain values and then um, that's like a bomb really you, you, you lob it into society maybe it's got a long fuse but uh, it, once it, it goes off um, the fallout just enters into every area of society I mean we're talking about works that influence that have much more influence than um, well probably just about anything really I mean art has a way of sort of spanning the whole spectrum of society right right that's true under the banner of art right still has social issues psychological issues historical right. Yeah, I mean, like Brave New World, obviously, is another great example. Like, how how influential has that book been, um, and what's the what's the real influence? Because if you look at the world, we're certainly getting closer and closer to what he prophesized, and many people see that simply as wow, how prophetic he was, you know, how much foresight and insight he had. <laughs> but they don't right. think, well, wait a minute, if he was such a great writer and a great book, how come the warning didn't take? How come we just completely right. ignored it? Right, well, you go, it's the going back to George Bernard Shaw, right? For one people, it's a warning, for other, it's a blueprint, right? Probably maybe 1984 is the same way. Like, in a lot of ways, you could see 1984 being, you know, being created under the Bush administration with, you know, their own Goldstein and the uh, Osama bin Laden and all these people, just two minutes of hate, tons of booze and drugs everywhere, That's total Trump. propaganda, fake wars. I mean, really, the, I mean, if you look at like even Putin said 95% of terrorist acts are carried out by the CIA, that means that your own government is creating that environment that they're complaining about, right? So they're, they're coming from both sides. So that's, that's where it gets scary, where these, these books are not merely, merely dystopian, but prophet they're not prophetic, they're blueprints, they're outlines, right? Yeah, and it, I mean, it does beg the question of how helpful is it to, it's like the, revel of the, the revelation of the method idea. I don't think there's anything like that in 1984, but you can imagine that there could be. Well, in some of that, you know, I think all the Ministry of Truth, Ministry of Justice, and Ministry, what was the other one? They're all in pyramids, right? So you have like this occult symbolism that he's putting out there and room 101, you know, just all kinds of strange. Uh, well, I was just thinking about the idea that if you let people know incrementally what's going on in the nature of society that they're in, they will lose hope. They will lose oh. all hope and they will just become docile and compliant and they will take the medication, right? right. Take the pill, yeah. Brave New World. So you can see 1984 and Brave New World working together as text because 1984 is just driving home the, you know, just the bleakness of the world that we live in um, and the unremitting darkness and the totalitarian power of it. And Brave New World is kind of offering, well, this, you know, this is if you want to be comfortable in a 1984 world this is the way you know just to have your testicles chopped off and take the tablets and you'll be fine <laughs> oh man i mean it's too much i mean what was orwell was uh huxley's student right at one point at eton right so he must have known about brave new world was he? yeah i don't know you know i i i, I haven't yet seen anything to convince me that orwell wasn't genuinely an okay guy the only thing is he was so successful and of course he was part of British intelligence so that's a bit of the red flag but he doesn't seem to me as anywhere near uh, you know a clear-cut case of, of, a, of a 
social engineer. Social so I don't engineer. Know. Well, I think that he was revealing things. I mean, if you look at Animal Farm and some of these other books in 1984, I think he's trying to tell you something. I think that he was putting it out there as a warning. I don't think it was like one of these people who was part of the social engineers like us. Huxley. You don't? Yeah. I don't, yeah. I never got that. You know, I, Blair was an unusual guy too, because he was actually got into Eaton on credit. You know, he was in there on talent. Whereas most of these Etonians were there as uh, legacies, you know, their parents, parents, parents went there. So right. I think that he probably from a very early age felt like he was different than everybody else, which he was, he was actually naturally intelligent. So and talented. Which so you know, anyway, it's uh, I, I didn't get that from from him, mm. but I also want to talk about kind of the occult roots that lead up to the kind of modern your discussion of Crowley and stuff like that because I thought that was very interesting. These orders of woodcraft, woodcraft chivalry, the New Forest Coven that leads to Wicca, and there's one name that popped up that I know well that you know is Victor Benjamin Newberg, this kind right. of hapless follower of Crowley, but. Uh, Maybe you can talk about some some of those uh, this kind of uh, naturalism that you know, very similar to the the kind of Nazism pre pre Nazi back to the soil blood and soil kind of naturalism that is in the UK. Yeah, well, one theory I explore in the book, and it's kind of in the title to some extent, "The Vice of Kings," is that the aristocracy are really. Um, mm, barbarians in disguise that they're brutalists they have very brutal values very you know, primal values and very brutal brutalistic child rearing practices and uh in a very coarse behaviors i mean you see this in the old movies about henry the eighth or whoever roman emperors you know they're incredibly coarse mm -hmm. uh self-indulgent hedonistic decadent obviously violent, sexually lewd, no, no real refinement. Um, and yet we have this idea of the aristocracy as, as the most refined of people. And I think this is the wolf in sheep's clothing, another example of this. Um, but I think there's also a problem because if, if the ruling class do have to assume an air of refinement, and part of it I think is an understanding of mimesis is that the, if you rule people they're going to admire you and then they're going to want to imitate you so if you, if if you're openly barbaric and brutal they will imitate that and you don't want that you don't want your your masses to be you know savage violent uh, uninhibited unrestricted fearless warriors <laughs> right you want them docile that's what you want so so there's two reasons to conceal your nature one is so that you can appear benevolent and you know, not uh, generate generate too much hostility. But the other is this: is mimesis that you, if people imitate you, then they'll imitate your your pretense, your cloak, which is to be very uh, refined and a bit effete and a bit feminized and quite passive and you know overly civilized. Uh, so, but the problem with that is is that well, one thing: if you, if you're constantly pretending to be something, you can end up becoming that uh and the other is is that your children will also imitate that because you you've got to be in public with your children some of the time or a lot of the time even and so they and they won't know necessarily that you're pretending that will create a split in their psyches on, as well but um i mean i'm oh, thinking all this for the first time so it might be a bit chaotic but um so well, then how do you counteract that uh 
conundrum in terms of you want to raise your children to be to be brutal barbaric leaders so that they can continue to rule in you know in your stead but uh you've also got to maintain the illusion that you're not this way and i think one of the things they came up with um in order to i mean obviously this relates to the hidden underlayer of these groups and these organizations in our society in terms of organized ritual abuse that's when they're they create a space that they can be truly barbaric within and their true colors show and you can also see how it would be become more and more exaggerated like the more you have to pretend uh in your life jekyll and hyde right. the, the more kind of wild and unadulterated it becomes when you can finally let it out um but I think they also, beside that, which would have been going on with the children as well, brutalizing the children and initiating them into brutal rituals, fox hunting would be an over example, of course. Uh, besides boarding, that, boarding school is probably well, another one, you know? Right, boarding school, yeah, I was going to say, uh, you, you, you've got to come up with socially legitimate ways to um, mm, toughen up your kids. And so, yeah, boarding school is one. But this is where the nature thing comes in. And I think it's, it's interesting because we've really inherited it as a culture and as a collective, the whole natural values thing. And that intersects obviously with Wicca, which is about paganism worship, nature worship. But it also intersects, as I say, with barbar barbar barbarism, whatever the word is, and you know, real primal behaviors. And so I think they came up with... Uh, well, particular schools and particular, uh, what you call them, regimes or movements, like the camping movement that I write about. The school I went to, Abbotsford, was a lot of outdoor things, a lot of nature. It wasn't nature worship per se, but the as you read, the, the symbol of Abbot's home was a five-pointed star. Yeah, it's a pentagram, up, upwards pentagram. Right? Yeah, the upward pentagram and drawn very much in the way of the witchcraft with the overlapping lines. And quite, I was quite astonished when I saw that because I wasn't aware at the school of that symbol and I wasn't aware that I was part of what I later discovered as this, this you know, large-scale um, promotion of and development of uh, a certain value set that seemed again specifically for I think again you've got the two versions you've got the one that's for the elite and the aristocracy and their children as a part of the training the conditioning so that they can uh, be prepared to rule right. and then and then you've got the, the sort of anesthetized version uh, which is just not for everyone because you need right it's like the boys the difference between the boy scouts and the bohemian club you know, so the bohemian the children of the elite bush jr bohemian club club molek so-called quote mock ritual sacrifice out in the woods redwoods uh real man's club a lot of probably homosexuality as well if you if you really read between the lines what nixon said mm. uh so real kind of this barbarism or nature nature worship and then you got the the kind of boy scouts that, that you know everybody all the kids all the kind of lower classes get which is you know is kind of like uh, milk toast whitewashed view of uh, you know rugged rugged outdoorsmen which isn't very rugged at all but you can i mean it, it what goes on at the bohemian grove is off the chart i mean the bohemian the bohemian grove is a uh, 
offshoot of the Bohemian Club, which goes, you know, uh, which is downtown San Francisco and goes back to Bohemia, which I think is in present day, present day Czechoslovakia, right? So is that, I, don't know, I think Bohemia was, Bohemia was a place, but, you know, was uh, seen as, I think, what you're talking about. If my understanding is correct, Bohemia was uh, this kind of more paganistic uh, culture that doesn't exist anymore. But, yeah, it's, uh, I mean, I think that here in the States, you, I, when I was reading your book, I was just looking, you know, you kind of take this very UK view, and I was just transposing, like, okay, this is exactly what's happening in the United States. All right. Hi, this is William Ramsey. Welcome back to William Ramsey Investigates. This is hour two of my discussion with Jason Horsley, author of Vice of Kings. We, uh, the first hour, we kind of just did a general introduction to the book, but we're going to kind of move forward um, into kind of some more disturbing material about Aleister Crowley and kind of tie in the intro to the, the latter part of the book, which uh, covers Crowley. But uh, Maybe we can just get started kind of about some of the more disturbing things that you came across about, about Crowley and not really having to recite exactly the um, really disturbing details of what Crowley was talking about at the Abbey of Palima, but um, maybe we can just talk about that. Mm. Well, I mean, what I set out to do with part two of the book was just put together as as much evidence as I could find for Crowley's complicity with stuff. And it all began uh, with, via an exchange with Peter Lavender around the infamous joke that Crowley makes in, in Magic and Theory and, and Practice about sacrificing children, the supposedly coded reference to masturbation. And um, uh, so the first place I started was Crowley's actually, uh, actual writings, and as you know, the, there's this infamous passage in uh, The Magical Diary of the Beast, which I didn't know about when I was first exchanging emails with Peter Lavender around the subject. Somebody posted it in the comment section of my blog, that passage, and so I managed to get a PDF of the magical record of the beast. and. I didn't read it cover to cover because it was too grueling, but I, you know, I skimmed the whole thing and I read whole, you know, a lot of what seemed to be the significant passages. And, and I also did searches and whatnot. And there was an awful lot of passages. Have you read the magical? Journal? I skimmed through it as well. It was, it's really hard to read in detail. So I think it was one of the things that I definitely missed about Crowley um, in my research of his. I, def I had the book. I do have the book. Mm -hmm. But that passage is very interesting. Even the the page preceding and the page after are both yeah. Pages. Yeah, and you can you can sort of part read between the lines and sort of put the pieces together as I attempted to do to 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 work out what's going on, not just in Crowley's head, but in the in the, the Abbey itself. Obviously, not down to the the finer details, but in a general way, like he's involved with these rituals. There's this massive, excessive cocaine use with the the discipling of the women and the children also. The children are referred to throughout the text, well, particularly Hansi, who was a toddler at that age. Poopy was just a newborn. Uh, there's a clear indication that he was giving 
well, I, wouldn't, I shouldn't say clear, nothing's very clear around Crowley, which is why it's possible for two researchers, myself and Peter Lavender, giving benefit of the doubt to Lavender, which I'm inclined not to really, but let's do it just for a moment, to have completely different points of view, to look at the same material and come away with almost opposite points of view. Um, but I would say that, well, what I attempt is to, just to look a lot more closely and looking closely at the journal, one of the things that seems evident is that he was giving cocaine not just to Hansi the child, the toddler, but to the infant because he, he refers to uh, the infant being cocaineless. I don't know how you would give cocaine to an infant, I suppose, obviously they wouldn't be able to snort it, but maybe in a liquid form or something. But there does seem to be an indication that, uh, yeah, that he was, he was giving cocaine to the children, definitely involving them in the rituals. And definitely it was his philosophy to let them witness sexual acts between adults so we've got all of that is factual and it's somewhat referred to factually in the journal um and a lot of the journal as you know is just ordinary journalism generally like got up did cocaine my nose is bleeding from too much cocaine and so on and so on and, and minutiae you know descriptions of minutiae of rituals but then there are these passages like the infamous one where he goes into much more poetic language and uh, uh, it's not clear whether he's actually reporting something that happened, something that he wants to happen, uh, something that he's planning, or, or, or a fantasy. And the, the journals are edited by, what's his name? John Simmons. Simons, right. His, his literary that? executor. Yeah. And Kenneth Grant. And, um, you know, some of the footnotes are quite, you know, there's there's a detail there, and they'll they'll explain it, make it clear to the reader what what's going on there. Um, but then other passages, such as this one, which for the listeners who don't know, is Crowley describing how he's torturing uh, his infant daughter uh, for the pleasure of his of his woman of the of the child's mother. So a sadistic sexual torture ritual. Um, there's no footnote for that. There's nothing, you know, to say. We know that this was didn't happen. That this is just one of his drug-addled fantasies, because dot dot dot. And there's lots of things like that. I I found the passage where he says that he 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 fiddled a couple of kids in town. And um, was it fiddled or diddled? I forget now. I don't know. I, I don't remember that seeing that one. Yeah, it's just a passage again. There's a list of ordinary things he did that day, and then he says ran into those urchins again and, and diddled them. Or fiddled them, I forget which, but either way, it's like WTF, you know. I think that needs a footnote. What's he, what's he referring to there? Who are these children? And you couple that together with the purient, or well, I say purient, that often dismissed as the purient articles in the British press during this time. Uh, Hitler, uh, Hitler, Crowley being kicked out of uh, Italy towards the end of this, the rumors about. A baby going missing, the rumors about child yeah. sacrifices and so on. Um, it, it's quite remarkable that um, how successful Crowley apologists and biographers have been in somehow divorcing these two things. Like yes. all of that was just hysteria around Crowley and all of the you know, passages where Crowley is actually referring to any of this stuff is just Crowley shit stirring, even though he 
you know, pursued legal action when the press did start to report stuff about him. So it's not as though he actually wanted people to, to think or to know that he was up to that. And yet, as you know, in today's time frame, uh, it's very hard to find a Crowley scholar period, actually, but to find a Crowley researcher who, who will look at any of this stuff. Or, I mean, either they don't know about it or they say they don't, or they will dismiss it like Lavender did as, as I say, just Crowley shit stirring and, um, and there's no basis for it. Well, as I show in the book, there is a lot of basis for it. Um, not just if you look at the material itself, all of the, the different testimonials, including Crowley's, it's quite persuasive that something, you know, very criminal was going on. But also, then if you also put it in the context of Crowley's life, what we know about his involvement with British intelligence, with, with right. black mass for blackmail purposes, with you know, sex parties in which he would photograph the participants to use to, to control them, which is part of an, you know, an ongoing SOP for intelligence agencies then and now, um, uh, and so on. I mean, it's, it's all in the book. I guess we can maybe get to it point by point, maybe. Um, it, it's really overwhelming uh, once you put it all together, I, th I think. I, mean, I know you would agree, but of course oh, you and Oh, I, I definitely own. agree. Let me read to you from Lieber 66. This is uh, Lieber Stella Roubaix, line, let's see, 21. Then again, the master shall speak as he will, soft words, and with music, and what else he will bring forward the victim. And he shall, also, he shall slay a young child upon the altar, and the blood shall cover the altar with perfume as of roses. Then the master shall appear as he should in his glory. <clears throat> so yeah. like you're sacrificing this child yeah. to think. So, you know, there's other references th through Crowley that, uh, you know, about child sacrifice. Yeah. And so, I mean, that, that's, the, that's the Stella Rubai, is that right? What you Correct. just read yeah, yeah. So I, I only even found that because um, during my exchanges with Lavender, um, well, actually, I can't remember the exact chain of events, but I, I definitely found about, out about the Stella Rubai because it's in one of Simon, Simon's books, the Necronomicon, the sequel to the Necronomicon. Hmm. It refers to the Stella Rubai and the, the, the secret ritual of, of incest and how incest is central to, and the vagina denti, and you know, the, 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 the centrality of a forbidden vagina, as in a forbidden, a forbidden female in... Uh, in that specific ritual and in occultism in general. And um, well, for people who don't know, Simon is reputed to be Lavenda's nom de plume, a pseudonym that he used for the writing of the Necronomicon, which is mentioned, uh, you know, it's a book that's mentioned in the works of, uh, what, what's this guy's name, the writer of, uh, What's the what's the guy that they they research that Lavenda's written books about? I can't remember. Kenneth the Grant. No, not Kenneth Grant. Oh well, uh, um, it's uh, by H. P. Lovecraft. So he actually kind of wrote a book based upon a fictional book, right? That's right. Yeah, it's. I mean, it is convoluted. Probably most of your listeners will be familiar with it. But yeah, H. P. Lovecraft, obviously famous horror writer, who wrote about this book called the Necronomicon in his fiction. Uh, Simon, Peter, Lavender uh, 
in, in the 70s in New York um, supposedly found the true Necronomicon that Lovecraft was referring to, but it was all, you know, a literary hoax as far as we know. Um, and it was, so it was introduced by Simon, who nobody knew who they were, uh, who it was. Um, and then there was this supposedly ancient text, which is the Necronomicon, which is now a massive best. I mean, it's been a bestseller for, for decades now. You'll find it in any used bookshop. And so there was this occult revival in the 70s. Uh, the right. Lavender was quite near at the centre, really, with the Magical Child Bookshop and so on. And he was certainly, as acknowledged, being a friend of Simon. But people who knew Lavender at the time have, have said, been on, gone on record as saying, yes, Lavender was Simon, as in if Simon had a public appearance, Lavender would show up. Now, Lavender can say, well, I was just fronting for Simon because he did, you know, blah, blah, blah. There's all kinds of ways to spin Well, he it. supposedly, uh, Simon gave a, a talk on Coast to Coast. Have you ever heard that? Yeah, the one so, was a voice. The voice yeah, it was a voice modulator. Yeah, but when you t when you tinker with it, it sounds just like Lavender. It's it's Lavender's voice. Yeah, yeah. <clears throat> yeah, it's more or less known. And then there's the copyright thing that if you call the copyright and Economicon, it's the name of Lavender. So, whatever. I mean, who knows? It's like Don Juan and Castaneda a little bit. Maybe there's a hidden master or an ascended master behind there, looking behind Lavender's front. But let's not even speculate about that. Certainly. For all intents and purposes, Lavender and Simon are one. Right. And uh, so it was very significant to me that I found such a, a, a meaningful piece of evidence via Simon Lavender's own work in the Necronomicon, which was the Stella Rubai ritual. Um, and yet, this is the same Lavender who, in his arguments with me, is saying that there's, you would, you know, for me to really understand. Uh, why there's no evidence for child sacrifice or child abuse in Crowley's life or in his work or in occult rituals and stuff, I would have to understand, you know, the, the rituals or I'd have to have a better, you know, familiar, more familiarity with the rituals. And yet, once I did start getting more familiar with them, what I found was that it's actually encoded into the rituals. Right. It's encoded. Yeah. That's well, it's point. not even encoded. This is the one you just read. It, it's, right. it's, it's explicit um but well i mean one of the arguments as you know that people make including lavender is oh well that's code that's symbolic of course it wouldn't crowley never meant actually sacrifice a child but as i say when you juxtapose that a with crowley's life and b with the with the sub or superculture of occult intelligence agencies and organized crime we know that child sacrifice is central to those operations and that does overlap with occultism so it makes absolutely no sense to somehow suggest what well, Crowley was concerned it was all just in code but with these other groups and organizations they do it literally I mean there's, there's, there's no basis for making that distinction that I know of. Right and I mean like I said uh, we talked before the world's tragedy includes reference to child sacrifice so you know it's it's and you can just read if you have the tenacity to read through it all there's a couple of references of child sacrifice yeah so what i mean one of the things that, that i point out in the book repeatedly which um i find significant in and of itself is is just how this evidence uh that in you know in any other case or if it was I mean, I don't know who, who would be a comparison point. I mean, Julius Savola comes to mind, but somebody who, who's generally not seen as, as a 
a sacrosanct figure um, who hasn't been canonized uh, and who was really just who who was being rig rigorously analyzed by impartial scholars there's no way that evidence of this sort would be overlooked it would it would very soon be put really you know central on the table so to speak uh, for analysis in terms of understanding uh, you know what was going on but with Crowley the opposite is the case is that like I found that reference and if you remember it in the book where Crowley in, in Crowley's papers according to the person I forget his name now but who had you know his his executor after Crowley died, who had access to Crowley's papers, according Simons, to Simons, yeah. Uh, no, it wasn't Simons. It oh, was someone else. Um, Wilkinson or Williamson? That one. Uh, another one. Gosh, I can't remember the guy's name. We can find out. But um, he he found something in the paper where Crowley referred to tying a Negro to a tree and cutting a hole in, in him and and penetrating, you know, sexually right. penetrating the hole. Now. Course, that doesn't mean that that's what Crowley did but the fact that that was in Crowley's papers and was even cited by Colin Wilson who's you know a reasonably respectable scholar and yet has completely disappeared in the mists of you know mythologizing around Crowley in the past few decades that itself I would say is, is very clear evidence that there's been an ongoing cover-up around right Crowley. well one more thing too is the book of the law says sacrifice cattle little and big after a child right so there's child sacrifice that, that runs through there. It's not and this, just and that, in magic and theory and practice. Right. But uh, I'm trying to think who, um, who the executor was. Well, and, and um, you know, needless to say, the Book of the Law is the holy text of Crowley's life and of Thelema now. And as I present in Vice of Kings, there's more than just evidence. There is this historical fact that there are, cults who have sacrificed children who followed the book of the law the colin batley one being the most infamous right. um so we know that people do use the book of the law to form you know as thelemites they it is their holy book and that they follow it to the letter in terms of sacrificing children we know that's a fact and it's it's you know it's like john peterson always makes this comment about you know, Marxists who say, well, it doesn't matter how many millions were killed under Marxism in Russia because they just got it wrong. It's you know, our kind of Marxism is the good kind. It's like that with right. Salima, right? Salima, or uh, Islam is the same. It's not the true Islam. It's not the true Marxism. It's what they always say, right? Yeah. So, yes. but, and okay, you, you can allow for a little bit of that, but to, to be utterly dismissive and just say, well, anyone who, who thinks that a Thelemite reads the Book of Law and sacrifice children is just an idiot, and so they're they're irrelevant. It doesn't, you know, it, it has no bearing. Um, is 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 even more idiotic in my opinion. Because uh, was it Francis King you were thinking of? Francis King? No. No, it was some. It's somebody not uh, not well known at all. Mm -hmm. um, can, I can find out. No, that's okay. Um, yeah. So. I mean, Crowley does have this thing. These people have excised it from the public, right? And they've always kind of distracted people from actually looking through and seeing those aspects of Crowley. But this this thing, like Crowley's actions were, you in your book, you put him in the same chapter as Alfred Kinsey, who also was involved in just horrific infant abuse. Yeah. And I think... Uh, 
I mean, yeah. Well, like yeah. Kenzie's research and all of his insights were, uh, yeah, vicious. And and they're both, we could say, equally uh, central to the sexual revolution. Right, Crowley and and uh, Kinsey, yes, definitely. Yeah, yeah, in different stages. Obviously, Crowley was way before Kinsey's time, although they overlapped enough that they corresponded, I believe. Although I don't know if there's any actual. Evidence. There's no actual uh, evidence of the correspondence, but there is the fact that he he coveted Crowley's diaries. Yeah. So he would have coveted the magical record of the beast, but also these other diaries that he had, and he traveled. There's pictures of Kinsey at uh, the Abbey of Philema where Crowley's abuse took place. Somebody told me that had been Photoshopped, so I don't know. No, that had not been Photoshopped, and he was there with um, Kenneth Anger. So Kenneth Anger has those pictures, and there's multiple pictures of Kenneth Anger tinkering with the murals that Crowley had made in the Chamber of Nightmares. So he was was uncovering all of the the painted over uh, murals that Crowley had drawn in there. But that's not Photoshopped. Right. There's actually, there's an additional picture that I have that I can show you of Kinsey and Anger together in, uh, in Italy. Because they took a tour. They didn't just stop in uh, the Ab- in Chefalu. They went through some other places and, and they were both inter, uh, Anger was homosexual. So they stopped in other, I think a couple other homosexual haunts. Hmm. And what was the, relationship between Kinsey and Anger, do you know? Well, that's a good question because there's films, um, there's a there's a good documentary about Kinsey by Chris Pinto, the name of which is the Kinsey, I can't remember the full title, but in that documentary there are, it's clear that Anger is involved in Kinsey's quote, experiments, unquote, and he's there's actually films uh, taken by Kinsey of a naked Anger getting out of bed and you know, being involved in Kinsey which, you know, fits the profile of what Kinsey did, which is studied and recorded things of his, you know, close social circle. So Mm -hmm. the relationship between Anger and Kinsey was, you know, fairly close. Right. Well, as we know, Anger, I mean, he pops up all over the place and... um, All over, everywhere. He pops up in Manson, he pops up with Bouzelet, he pops up with the the Stones, Stones and Dryberg, who you write about, um, yeah, it's, it's, he's everywhere. Pops up in the modern culture, James Franco, all these other, uh, there's many directors pictured with him, you know, and he's, so he's still, uh, he's still alive. I know, he's, yeah, he lives in Hollywood. And of course he wrote those very popular books, Hollywood Babylon, my sister has those books. That's correct, very popular. That was actually a banned book. Uh, and some of his stuff was banned, so. Um, I'm going to show you this photo of uh, of Kinsey together with them. Let's see, share. So this is a photo that not a lot of people have ever seen. But can you see that? Yeah. So that's anger, skinny anger when he had hair. Mm-hmm. Kinsey actually passed away um, within a couple of years of these them them being together. But they're clearly in Italy together. It's not shocked. Right. Hmm. So, you know, it's, uh, and, and Kinsey himself, I mean, Anger himself was kind of like carrying on that tradition. A lot of his films were sexually charged or homoerotic um, in those themes. Have you watched any of the Jack Parsons Love and Rockets? I have not. Have not. Have you? 
as this was the first episode it was it was not it was bad it was very oh. poorly done and oh, but it was interesting i mean it was, i had to watch a little bit at least this research and it was interesting to see it was very clear the way the template they were using was was the um you know the maverick individual genius who's in the system and kind of fighting against the ignorance within the system and finding a way to forge his own path and achieve you know his destiny as this this great genius right uh, and the occultism is part of that as part it's, it's it's the context for his occult interest is is again this eccentric genius who had these odd proclivities but they're all part and parcel like even the very start his fantasy life uh is is shown to be what's fueling his desire to achieve success you know and build the rockets and get us into space and all etc etc so it's definitely a glorification and it's put in the context of yeah individualism the american dream obviously space colonization so it's like occultism really has has been i think one of the things we could talk about and that i do address in the book of course it's kind of partly what it's about is the way that occultism has been rehabilitated or habilitated i don't know if it was ever i mean it's because occultism has has always been a dark forbidden thing right, right. within the christian society because it's always had this dark uh you know sinister aspect to it yes but if we even if we just start with anger like he was a cultural icon the rolling stones and uh, obviously not manson that was the Led Zeppelin, friends with jimmy page yeah, and who bought Crowley's house and so on. So, 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 so back then, even in the sixties, obviously occultism and Sgt. Pepper's uh, Heart Club album and stuff. So occultism was being, and then the Necronomicon was being introduced as as something integral to the counterculture, essential to the yes. counterculture. Yes. But now at this point, it's, uh, and I think this is something that came out with Pizzagate or tried to, but then got suppressed and ridiculed that uh, occultism, I think because it's always been central to the ideology of the aristocracy, the ruling class, um, and because those values eventually trickle down or are deliberately insinuated into the culture, um, eventually they become mainstream. And I think that's, that's what we're seeing with something like the Jack Parsons thing. That's why it was, he was a useful, uh, uh, you know, case study or to, to, to make a hero out of Jack Parsons, who actually, like Crowley, identified as the beast or the Antichrist. Antichrist. He, take, he took the oath of the Antichrist. There's a document out there where he takes that oath. And yeah, so I mean, Crowley called him uh, his number one disciple in the world was, was uh, Jack Parsons. Actually, he was in contact with George Pendle, who wrote the book, uh, wrote the book about him. It was Strange Angel. Right. right. Strange well, angel, what's the toast? Otherworldly life of Joe, scientist John Parsons. Yeah, the Feral House thing. <clears throat> Our, well, I'm sorry? Um, feral House. Book. Yes. Yeah. yeah. Um, well, it brings to mind Dryberg as well, who I write about in part one of the book, who probably many of your listeners have never heard of, but Tom Dryberg was a Labour MP, he was also homosexual, was associate with Boothby. Lord Boothby, and, bo- and both of them were associated with the Cray twins, who I write about quite a bit, who who ran the same circles of child trafficking with Jimmy Savile. And Dryberg was a friend of Crowley's, 
and Crowley actually named Dryberg as his world successor for a period, right. but but it didn't pan out. Whatever Dryberg wasn't interested, but he still he hung out with Crowley, and in the meantime, Dryberg was also um, trying to persuade Mick Jagger to run for uh, as Labour MP, and and so that intersection is very clearly defined. Um, and but another... Dryberg was kind of like an everyman. He was involved in so many things. He was uh, involved with the Cambridge Five. He was a gossip columnist. He kind yeah. of knew it. He, he ran in underground circles, friends with Gore Vidal. Um, and we talked about Simons, but uh, when Crowley died, there's a sequence where Dryberg goes back to the paperwork of Crowley and retrieves a copy of his oath to, he made a kind of like a blood oath to Crowley that he would do it as well. And he signed it and he wanted that paperwork back from Simon. So Simons writes about Dryberg just showing up and taking his paper back. So he seemed to want to cover his tracks with Crowley. But yeah, there's pictures of uh, Dryberg. What was the one of the Cambridge Five, these spies who spied for uh, spied for Russia? But uh, uh, what was it, Burgess, Philby? Yeah, yeah. Burgess, yeah, Burgess, Philby, and these guys. But Burgess, he, there's a picture of him. He actually traveled to Russia to. Uh, to chat with Burgess at one point. So, yeah, he, but I mean, I think that the, he, he wasn't merely an MP. He was the head of the Labor Party at one point, wasn't he? Was he? I thought that he was. I thought that he had made, ascended to the head of the Labor, but I'd well, have to check that out. Isn't it, the head of the Labor Party would be the Prime Minister, so. Okay, so I guess that's not the yeah, way it he works. He was there. the Prime Minister. He was, he was, he was very high up, yeah, for yeah. sure. Um, but, I mean, it's... <laughs> It's one of the things that is quite confounding or looking at this stuff is that these these characters, they pop up here and then and you realize, oh, they're not only the influential in politics, they're also influential in, uh, you know, the counterculture, the psychedelic movement, say, uh, sexual research, sexual experimentation, they're in the music thing, you know, they're hobnobbing. And, uh, you know, it's... It's like we have this idea about the ruling class that they're sitting in their mansions somewhere, kind of minding their own business, and maybe they're dictating policy and and so on and so forth. But but it's actually much more kind of they're much. It's like the Fabian thing of permeators. They a permeator. The idea is is that um, the carriers of the the ruling class ideology, uh, in order to really have far-reaching and long-term influence they can't just be sitting in their mansions you know having their their dark parties and discussing you know Bilderberg style discussing how to control the world they have to permeate society right. and that means they have to pass almost for like us so even somebody like Dryberg who's an MP but he also uh, you know is a journalist as you say and or a copy or a columnist and uh, his various activities made him seem like you know not exactly one of us, but it was a right. celebrity. And obviously Mick Jagger, uh, Kenneth Anger, uh, Crowley, uh, any number of these characters you could mention, it seems as though they're moving in two worlds. On the one hand, they, they're part of this cryptocracy and they do have these secret events and parties and meetings and who knows what all else, right? But they also have this other life maybe as what Atwill calls lifetime actors, where they're mingling with the culture and instruments of the culture. And they, if they're successful, if they're effective, they manage to create a persona or a character that 
um, seems to be a maverick, seems to be a, a, a rebel type, and it's uh, it's very deceptive, you know. Right. They create, they they become cultural icons. Seems well, it's interesting. One of my favorite lines from your book is uh, you write this sentence: "Perhaps the hardest thing to imagine about the secret life of the cryptocracy is that it isn't a subculture at all; it's a superculture." So you can see all these figures really influencing intellectual history and it's it's pretty remarkable driver too i think he was in the continent at the beginning of world war ii like he was in very interesting places all the time yeah yeah but uh yeah i mean what else yeah you talked about Gollum baitley and ian watkins and and peaches Geldof. you know yeah, the story of you you know the story of even watkins of lost prophets right I do, yeah. I don't think I, I mean, it kind of fits in with your whole theme. Um, well, I mean, this is, I think it's something that is, again, I say Petergate was a sort of watermark or something in, in more ways than one. And one way being that it was so widely ridiculed. And to this day, it's seen as fake news. Even in conspiracy research circles, there are some, there are plenty of people who think that the whole thing was exaggerated and was kind of part of the right alt right wing you know paranoia or homophobia or whatever else that's the way it was couched yeah that's, that's to some degree it's been couched in that way but um i think uh, it, it it it's also an indication of how it's starting to become more visible that uh uh, cases, and I just read one today. You know the um, you know the author of Mists of Avalon. Do you know who that is? Mister About No, who's that? Okay, well, there's a book called Mists of Avalon. Uh, Mists of Avalon, right? Yes. Yeah, and it's a book. It's like even more than the the Necronomicon. It's a it's a book that you would just see everywhere. You go to hostels, you go to hotels, you obviously use bookstores. It's just freaking everywhere that book. Or it was in the seventies and eighties. I've actually seen that cover all all over the place. Yes, that's what I'm saying. So anyway, that Marion Zimmer Bradley is the author, and it came out in 2014. I only just heard about it that she was um, sexually abusing her children, and that her partner was abusing a lot more children, and that. Uh, it wasn't an isolated incident like it was part of the culture the kind of intelligentsia um bohemian elite circles that they were moving in it was just part of uh that again this superculture and of course this book is is huge this book has been hugely influential it's considered a feminist classic and blah 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 it's very kitschy but my point is is that just another example really that when you mentioned this guy watkins and i think something came out recently about um i can't remember now another famous musician who, who who said that in the 70s he was taken into a cult in italy and, and raped over a period of time did you see that was no it, i don't know that story um the specials or one of those kind of mod mod type bands he came out about that but so there's more and more of these cases coming to life yes, yes. was it the specials oh uh, no but you're right the cases are coming out they're coming like to the real ones but but and they're real and they're, you know they're authenticatable but um the tendency is for people just to think well okay so it happens a lot and 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 we we're starting to realize how much but it's there's still isolated incidents like how how long does it take for there are enough um oil bubbles or whatever to 
you know that when they they all start touching and they all form just one great blob right uh, and that's the superculture that in, in fact what seems to be coming to light is is that these are standard operating procedures or or methodologies or you know psychological strategies of control that underlie our entire society and and this is my point about crowley is is that it's like two uh, oil bubbles that meet if they get close enough they merge that uh crowley's whole output and his philosophies and his rituals and his beliefs and all the rest of it um once you start to see more clearly the world that he was moving in and that he was so influential within uh, you see that they actually and and how you know dark and destructive it is you see that they they mesh together very well essentially that he, he was he was kind of like and i said this about my brother uh he was kind of exaggerating or sort of clowning something making it and jimmy savile also making it seem larger than life and therefore not what it appeared to be must have been a bluff couldn't really be talking about that but also like that he was he was a because he was such a colorful outrageous character he was a rebellious one rather than somebody who was actually simply embodying the very the hidden culture right right feeding him and empowering him right but that's like part of the crowley joke too in a broader sense right these guys joking putting on this kind of public public show it, yeah it, it seems to be again part and, of the, the strategy and yeah it goes to the smiley face it goes to like it's a big joke this kind of theme that that permeates this occultism where they have the internal secret knowledge and they have the secret agreements secret handshakes and they're the insiders and the outsiders don't know they don't know the facts they don't know what they're up to they don't know the secret parties the eyes wide shut parties Pizzagate was legit. You know, they had Podesta was sending emails to Denny Haster, a convicted guy. Well, I don't know if he ever got convicted. He got convicted of covering up his his uh, abuse of, of wrestling boys, you know. But mm -hmm. they were talking to him and sending him emails in those Podesta emails after he got convicted. They were talking about when he's going to get out of jail or something like that. Well, but you, I mean, you know why people end up having to say it's not legit? It's precisely the point I'm, I'm trying to make. I mean, you're not making it that well, but that at a certain point you see that it bleeds over into, into our culture itself. It's not, it's not just this hidden organized crime or this hidden pedophilia. Or, it's actually in everything. So with Pizzagate, it was it was impossible to tell a difference between evidence of, of child sexual abuse and crime and you know our lifestyle you know bohemian liberal values because it, it was it's the same it's just the, the liberal bohemian bohemian values allow for that yeah i mean it isn't to say that right-wing conservatives don't get up to it too but the pizza cake was the case well that's interesting. Dryberg and Booth would be were both sides of the aisle, right? Both yeah, sides yeah. of the aisle, both involved in child abuse and sex parties, and 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 I think the craze were procuring for them, or somebody would. Yeah, yeah, they were yeah. involved in kind of the rough underground of London, right? Yeah, yeah. And and bringing back to the joke, that there's something there that's really hard to kind of get my head around, anyway, which is that. Yeah, part of it is they're joking, ha ha, you don't even know it's a joke and the joke's on you. There's a, there's a sort of enjoyment of superiority 
there um, and the gloating and the rubbing victims' noses in and all that. But there's another aspect, which is, is that it's, it's normalizing. Because the more people joke about, particularly cultural figures, the more they joke about child sex abuse or whatever else it is, the more it normalizes it because it's well it's something you can joke about initially it's like well they're only joking about it because they're not doing it you know they couldn't possibly joke about it if they were really doing it because that would be insane you know that would be suicidal to do that but of course actually somebody like Jim Savile he can't it turns out he could because he was untouchable and right. gradually the penny drop drops that no they're joking about it because they do do it but they they're not ashamed of it and they they're um, I, there's, there's a rationale, and I, I do wonder this about that exchange with Peter Lavender even, that there's a certain point where you cross over the line and you, you, you decide or you realize or you choose to believe that actually this only looks like a bad thing, it's actually really a good thing. Uh, yeah, not only is it point, yeah. enjoyable, but it's, we've got that you know, ironclad rationale for it, the occult philosophy, right. that this is all about initiation. This is about transgression of social norms to ascend to a higher level and to transform into gods and so on. And so, um, yeah, of course they're laughing. And, but the laugh is a kind of invitation as well. It's like, if you're willing to laugh along with us, you... Right, excellent point. Mm -hmm. Like how many people did Savile initiate? You know, how many people did he bring along? It seems like he had, he had a wide coterie of, associates and friends even going up to uh the duke of windsor right mm -hmm. so i mean who knows what those guys are doing behind closed doors and savile i think one of his body one of the bodies of the yorkshire ripper you probably know a lot about right wasn't it wasn't it found by his where he lived i don't remember the details but i know savile was a suspect for a yeah time. suspect and he was he was he was kind of friends with the ripper before he got caught right yeah. something like that well we it's not quite i don't quite know you know how, how friendly they were but it certainly seems they knew each other and jimmy savile certainly visited him after he was arrested and there's also, a famous picture of them him and frank bruno yeah. the boxer and uh the ripper whose name i can't remember right now uh, peter Sutcliffe. Peter Sutcliffe. Yeah. yeah and ian brady as well uh, ian brady and savile knew each other and Right. Uh, and, and Brady bragged about being friends with the Cray twins, Ian Brady being the, you know, the, the Moore's murderer with Myra Hindley. Right. Another and didn't um, Savile kind of mockingly imitate uh, Hindley's hair, hair dressing or her hairstyle? Did he? I don't know. I thought I saw a picture of him where he was kind of joking around like that. Yeah. I don't know. There's a lot of inside jokes, man. A lot of inside jokes with uh, the Savile. I can't, there was that, I think that when people got onto him when he had that interview with the documentary maker, what was yeah, his name? Louis Thoreau, yeah. Louis Thoreau, where he says, I never got nicked. And yeah. he called his mom the the Duchess and all kinds of strange stuff. And people just went, something. Yeah, well, Savile, I mean, Savile, is, as you know, is, is an incredible case study. Like one could, one could find out so much or intuit or deduce so much about the, the British sub-superculture of the, of the cryptocracy and the criminal underworld, overworld, the criminal overworld, um, by just looking at, at, at Savile and really... Right. Uh, and, and not just what he was doing, 
and what he was admitting to, but uh, as you say, the way he was joking about and the little insinuations and inferations, inferences, like he was, he was tipping audiences or people constantly about what he was involved in. And it creates this strange twilight zone that it's like you, you never know, like who, who knows, uh, who's just totally ignorant, yeah, like who knows about it and who's lying? Who knows about it and who's joking and, you know, kind of nudge, nudge, winking? Who's completely ignorant? Who's kind of one foot in and one foot out and just right. covering up because it's kind of awkward? It's really... It, it's, it's a great point because I'm sure so many of those people that he was networked with knew exactly what he was about. And I bet I, w- I would think that he was involved also in murders and cover-ups and fixing. I wouldn't be surprised if that was an aspect of his life is that yeah. it wasn't about sex, merely sexual abuse and all that stuff, but also Jim will fix it, right? Yeah, yeah. Have you ever thought about that? Well, I mean... That was I, the title I, of a show for, for Americans who don't know, is Jim will fix it. Right? right, and it was a show I grew up watching in which, and maybe this is a good dark example of what you're talking about. Jim will fix it was Jimmy Savile's weekly show in which kids were invited to write in and ask Uncle Jim to do something for them, to fulfill some fantasy or another. And uh, and then the winners, you know, would come onto the show and he would take them wherever they wanted to go, whether they wanted to go to Disneyland or whatever it was, ride a horse, or, you know, that, that would be the show. And uh, so, because he was surrounded by kids every week and those kids were being sexually abused and, and raped by Jimmy Savile. And one wasn't, of the, didn't he have other friends? Didn't other people got busted or some of his associates get yeah, busted? Gary Glitter was one. Yeah, he would have other people on the Coming show, or at least on other shows. He did various shows. And so that there was this element, yes, of, of procuring children. Uh, and so, I mean, talk about a honey trap. And one of the things that came out recently, and I don't have a source on this, but um, was that sometimes children would write to Jimmy Savile and say that they were being sexually abused at home and they wanted him to to save them. And at least in this case that was reported, he uh, he had the, the wow. kid on the show and then sexually abused him. Abused them, them too. Yeah. Wow, that's sick. Yeah. So, I mean, there's so many different ways in which you could see that. But Savile, too, was like Dryberg, too, because he was with the Beatles. He was at the very beginning of so much of British music culture as well yeah, so yeah he was having these people featured on his in his shows right well yeah but it was even before that i was just going to mention that like the mass observation thing which i found out while writing vice of kings that there's this whole program in 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 britain about uh, secretly surveying the british society but specifically the working class and this was in the wings of the of an uprising you know a working class striking in the 20s which where the society almost ground to a halt so there was definitely a lot of scrambling around in the you know the aristocracies how can we prevent this happening and i think that was one of the drives behind creating mass observation which was yeah to secretly observe the working class in their environments and to find out you know what that what was going on with them, what their preferences were, and so on, and that extended into actually creating environments that they that the working class would come into to be observed, and so that led to the creation of dance halls, and not to say it was only for this reason, but there was partly this, and dance halls were a way not just to observe people, 
but to influence them because you create you've even create tunes this was the, the war effort to engender patriotism to get um, people to go to to sign up to fight in world war ii um creating songs and dances that would instill people with patriotic feeling and this was the climate that jimmy savile uh you know, rose to power within. Like he was the first ever DJ. He was the first guy to put two turntables together and he probably didn't do that, but he, he would, as in you got two turntables, you got no gap between the songs. So he, so that's, and that's what he was known as, as a DJ. But that was, that was two decades later. Like he, when he started, uh, it was down in the trenches. And this was the same period that Jimmy Savile was, um, you know, in, in organized crime and he ran his own dance club and dance clubs were places for the organized crime to sell drugs, prostitution, all that. So all these different worlds. So do you think Jimmy Savile would get a cut of that? So he, his dance hall, he would allow the drug dealers in and stuff? Mm -hmm. That's the way it works. Yeah, well, I don't know the specifics, but... Um, do you I mean, know, that's did you know that Jimmy Savile was a seventh son? Yeah. Yeah, he's a seventh son. Yeah, I think you mentioned that in your book in contest. Somebody else used the seventh son. Uh, I remember hearing it because of the tradition of a witch, right? Right. Yeah. Yeah. Wow. Um, one other thing I wanted to mention about Crowley was uh, the, uh, the another child sacrifice was the the band lecture where he was talking about Gilles de Rye, the French guy who abducted maybe yeah. five hundred young boys and sexually abused them and then killed them, and he yeah. just traveled around France, but the thing about Gilles de Rye, well, or Gilles de Retz, or Gilles de Montmorency, or whatever, was that he had a network of like occultists. He had this other guy, Prelati. He had all these people helping him procure. So this was this crazy kind of network of abuse that he went unhinged. And he uh, at that time, Gilles de Rye was basically the head of the. He was called the Marshal of France, which was the number one military. Um, person in France, and he was the backer of uh, uh, oh, what was the girl's name? Joan of the, what's that? Joan of Arc. Joan of Arc, yeah. So he was like the backer of Joan of Arc. You ever hear those stories? I have heard the stories. Yeah, I haven't. I I, I had Gilderay in Vice of Kings for a period, but I took it out because I realized it was too large a subject, and I would have to spend weeks researching it just to even have a few paragraphs. You know what I mean? Yeah. Because of all, of course, the people saying that that was all hysteria and blah blah blah. So you want to be, really get the facts. Well, there's uh, tons of French literature on that story. They call him a different. They think I think call him Bluebeard or Blackbeard. They have different names for him on the continent. But uh, there's some very good books. I mean, I have a few of them. I was okay. interested in the subject because of Crowley, the band lectures where he tried to give this lecture. I think it. Uh, you know, at Oxford and they kick him out. So that band lecture of Jill DeRye is in Crowley is giving, is giving him a very favorable read, you know, Oh, this is a great man. You know, he was involved in killing and murdering. Well, but he would, it, part of it was saying that it was, uh, again, that it was hysteria and he was maligned and, and, and framed that would, that would have been Crowley's defense. So there's the joke, right? Yeah. So yeah, Jill DeRye is pretty crazy. Um, I mean, yeah, it's, it's, <laughs> It is complex, of course, and one of the things I'm aware of talking with you is, I mean, most of your listeners, because they're sympathetic to you, and most of my listeners, uh, are already going to be very open to what we're talking about in terms of Crowley, and so we don't want to preach to the choir too much, right? There's thousands of people, have many, who, of course, think that Crowley's the shit, 
right. and they think that uh, people who are I mean, I had this at the Reddit thread. Somebody started a thread about my work and, and it just got shut. It literally got shut down and I literally got banned from it. Uh, not, not even for arguing. I just said, I was just questioning. Well, because the, the line there was, this book is ridiculous. There's absolutely no evidence for Crowley's involvement in any of this. And it's just stupid. And I said, well, what do you mean? Have you read the book? And no, he hadn't read the book. And, and then I got banned. So... Did so, they call you a fundamentalist Christian? No, it didn't oh, get to that point. But, oh, okay, because that's what they always call me. Yeah. A hillbilly fundamentalist Christian. Right. So, and that's all too easy. And again, there's this, I'm sure that some people who are shutting down the discussion, uh, it's, it's, it's ill-intentional and, and fully conscious, as in they, they know there is something there and they don't want anyone talking about it for sure. But there's also a lot of people who are just, drunk the kool-aid so to speak no doubt and uh fallen under the spell of you know the crowley's glamour magic and the whole industry that's right. been promoting him for several decades and so i'm 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 interested and concerned with addressing those people like what, what would open them up to a re-evaluation of their hero or even if he's not their hero um you know that I mean, Crowley, like I say, it is complex and one could, I, you know, I wrote a hundred pages demonstrating Crowley's complicity with dark social abuses, power abuses, but of needless to say, one, one could write another hundred pages that was completely different that would make it seem that he would never, ever be complicit with something like that. Like he overtly <laughs> states his positions and you can say, well, okay, so there's somebody who has a strong sense of mar morality, right? Right. Um, well, well, that's that would be go for yeah. That's that's the people that who cut and chew, uh, kind of take selective quotes from Crowley or selective elements that make him seem less notorious, you know. So I think that that that's true. I mean, you could definitely get an expurgated version of Crowley that makes him just look like a like a guru, you know, like somebody who's looking out for the best of human beings, but. Yeah, with some personal character flaws. I mean, that's the. Did you read uh, the Kaczynski's bio on Crowley? I did a long time ago, uh, ten, you know, eight years ago, probably. Yeah. I read most of the bios that were available. Bill Kaczynski or Kaczynski. I read uh, the other one by the same guy who wrote, and I've talked to this guy. He's a professor in the Midwest. He wrote uh, Lawrence Sutin. So that was Alistair Crowley. So I read Sutin. I read Simons. And uh, there was one other one. That came oh there was another there's another pro crowley um, intellectual who um, wrote a recent book and i've read a couple of his books but he's a very detail-oriented crowley biographer and he's broken down he, he like broke down crowley's time in germany so he wrote a book about that whose name i can't remember was that marco passo no it wasn't marco Mm. Uh, Marco Pazzi. Oh, oh it was tobias Chir tobias churton yes i've listened to tobias churton's um interviews and he'd probably fit the profile of exactly the type of person you're talking about he would sit says this very favorable view of crowley and he really likes crowley's poetry he's a big fan of like la Gitane and these these poems that crowley wrote but yeah tobias churton is definitely but he actually got his start kind of in occultism too he was a scholar of rosicrucianism as well so mm. um, yeah, but Tobias Churton definitely would not want to look at the more disturbing 
sicker elements like Leah Sublime is like, how do you justify Leah Sublime? Have you read the poem Leah Sublime? Yeah, well, I suppose the way that you justify that is again that Crowley was a, a taboo breaker in the in the realm of the arts, and that's considered right. respectable by the liberal intelligentsia. Right. Interesting, yeah. Uh, Not that it has any meaning, but you write about in your book one of the another interesting quote is that this record of Crowley, even though these are justified these statements, there are people out there who are going to read them and take them literally. Right? They're not going to take it as a very objective distance oh he's just kind of a thing but they're going to actually work on his dictums they're going to actually fulfill his rituals they're going to think that that's the avenue to god in right yeah, yeah. well and, and not just individuals either but groups and even i mean it's, it's maybe not a lot of evidence but i prevent pre, pre, present some evidence um was it Catherine sullivan i remember somebody that jeff wells interviewed a survivor of, of uh, ritual abuse and trauma-based mind control who uh, her father was her main programmer or abuser and he relied heavily on Crowley writings so then that suggests that Crowley was providing you know um, information or rituals and all the rest of it that could be used uh, for mind control purposes. Well, and that's a great point because that's exactly what Scientology is about right at the very beginning of Scientology uh, L. Ron Hubbard leaves Jack Parsons, starts Dianetics 1948, Crowley dies 47. L. Ron Hubbard thinks he's the one who comes after. He, his son is saying, uh, the, the son of L. Ron Hubbard is saying that Hubbard had Crowley's writings and would study them before his speeches. And he actually, there's a recorded reference of, of Hubbard talking about Crowley. And his son actually said that all Scientology is, is black magic, you know, written over a long period of time. It's a slower process. So, and it promises the same kind of results that Crowley did, you know, that you will be a God. You will have a power over matter, energy, space, time. So there's another person uh, who, in my opinion, created a very destructive cult um, that, you know, ruined the lives of really tens of tens of thousands of people. Still has that effect to this day. So you can see this branch off of Crowley mm -hmm. um, into Scientology. A much, a much more populist branch, isn't it? And Scientology, and and perhaps related, it's quite thoroughly discredited. I mean, you won't find too many defenders of Scientology. Not I anymore. suppose it still still exists, though. It's still running as a church, so all of those people would. So maybe I'm being naive there. Um, I think the people in there definitely are believers. You know, they're true believers. So, but I think the expose of all this science fiction this imaginative stuff that he came up with about xenu tagiak you know spaceships i mean when you see the when you see the volcano on there that their symbology the volcano is actually where human beings were ensconced their spirits of humans were ensconced in this volcano volcano 10 million years ago or something like that that's why that volcano is always being shown. Yeah, Ken and me was telling me that. So but have you ever hung out with Thelemites? Do you have any Thelemite friends? Not openly. I mean, the only Thelemite that I've really studied is Damien Eccles, who I think read Crowley and took it seriously and actually is a member, was a member of the OTO in jail and was convicted of killing three kids, binding them and drowning. Do you know anything about why, why they bind and drown, why the cultists bind and drown? um people in a sacrifice no 
I don't either. I can't figure it out. But anyway, those that was I think was a cruelly inspired um, evil evil action by somebody who came across Crowley's information and took it seriously. An impressionable 18-year-old kid. You know? So what, what, what would you say the appeal of Crowley is? Well, I think it's the, any, any promise of any type of uh, scholar is it, or, you know, a guru is that you can attain personal power, you can get what you want, and you're free from restrictions. So do what thou wilt is really about you know, you can be your own kind of uh, force in the world. So Crowley himself, I think, was was a sorcerer, and he had a lot of human wisdom. But I think that that's really what that promise is. So for certain people who feel constricted either by the way they were raised, the society they're in, I think that Crowley offers that 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 freedom from re restriction and then you can do whatever you want without con without these consequences without worrying about the consequences really so then it just occurred to me it's kind of maybe it's kind of obvious but met probably many of the people who are attracted to crowley are, are, are were raised christians i would say there's probably a significant some i would say there's i mean I think at least in the West, at least in the States, that's your predominant religion. So exactly. I think here that would be the case, uh, depending upon how many Thelemites there are. But it may not be. I mean, have you ever seen OTO Families? Have you seen that on, on Facebook? No. You should check out OTO Families because it's kids of people who are OTO members. And they're taking pictures in front of the, the making ups of, you know, of what the Gnostic Mass that Crowley did. So these, there's, there's OTO families happening. Yeah. Well, the Gnostic Mass is, is another one that says the children are supposed to be part of it. Right, a girl and a boy. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. So go check out OTO families. It's a, it's a mind bender. But yeah. Um, but yeah, that's the Crowley's promises of a kind of a free, uh, rules-free empowerment. And you can get kind of the fulfill whatever... I mean, it's kind of like taking the seven deadly sins and saying they don't matter, you know? The opposite, lust, greed, yeah, yeah, power. Yeah. That's right. It's not pride. they don't matter. It's that you want to do them. Right. You, and you need to do them. It's actually your moral duty to commit all of the sins. To commit all the sins, right. Isn't there like, I think that there's one of Crowley's rituals where the goal of it is to increase your lust. So not to kind of be less lustful, but actually be more lustful. Yeah. Well, I don't know that specific, but it fits overall yeah. with Crowley's thing. Yeah. What about his his quest to to find and commit the the one unforgivable sin, the sin against the Holy Spirit? Did you have you ever speculated on that? Um, no, I, I didn't. Did you? Did you figure out what that sin is? <laughs> uh, well, it's in the book, isn't it? I mean, I, I juxtapose it with what Dostoevsky said, which is the supreme sin is to violate a child. Violate a child. Uh, the well, the, the Bible says that anyone who touches, what does the Christ say? Is anyone who touches one of my little ones, it would be better for you to have a, a millstone tied around your neck, thrown in the ocean. And this is another example, see, of people who supposedly take Crowley seriously, but don't take the idea that he might have done anything really evil seriously. Mm -hmm. Like that, it's, 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 um, 
it's double thing because if they take him seriously, why would they not take him seriously when he says that he dedicated his life to finding and committing the, the one unforgivable sin, the sin against the Holy Spirit, right? And then, why, and then why don't they wonder, well, did he find it and did he commit it? And if so, what was it? And, and then, but then say Crowley would never sexually abuse a child. That's absolutely outrageous. How dare you suggest that without any evidence? Isn't that evidence in, in and of itself? You know, there's, there's, there's all kinds of um, things that are being ignored. And uh, what, I mean, one of the things that, and I, and I took out quite a lot from the book where I was psychoanalyzing Crowley because I felt that it was a bit overambitious, but um, the whole thing around his mother, that she called him masturbating and she referred to him as the beast thereafter and, and punished him. And she was, you know, obviously very virulent Christian. So she gave him a very negative imprint of Christianity, not just her, but the mother is the most powerful influence in any child's life if she's present. I mean, if she's not possibly. And around his sexuality, around uh, a negative in, imprint about Christianity, around his sexuality that, that included being called the, the name Beast. Well, right. I mean, that's like the trauma-based mind control is you, right. you abuse somebody and then you and you speak to them while you're doing it and that will program them so that that you can't kind of you're not going to de-emphasize that in terms of how he ended up identifying himself as the beast itself was a result of trauma and was consistent throughout his life that he was opposed to all things christian like his whole life was dedicated to destroying christianity to subverting and undermine undermining christianity and replace it really replace it with crowley replacing it with the new god of horrors which again you know i used to think people who called crowley a satanist were just ignorant christians but it turns out that they were right because if you if again you read between the lines look at the magical journals to him i was horus was satan right and 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 he even referred to him as satan sometimes and, and so on so he was literally a satanist and satanism of course is literally you know the, the inversion of and the rejection of god and, and of christian values and is in psychology speaking it's a negative identity that that it's like you know if we're if we're we try and get free of our parenting of our childhood uh we we try everything to be the opposite to you know what we grew up with well we're, we're just going to end up with a negative identity that's just defined by the very thing that we want not to be so we end up just being the shadow of it which is satan the shadow of god so and i think that this extends to occultism at large or as a larger ideology that occultism is like the shadow or the negative identity of religion it's a reaction against christianity right that's my theory of occultism and so that's why crowley was such a key figure in that well oh that's part of how he was rather because uh it, it, as i say his conditioning his childhood trauma and all the rest of it was utterly opposed with all of his life force against Christianity, identified with the beast, and then he became, of course, the leading occultist of the 20th century. And so that's why I was thinking, well, probably so probably his appeal is inseparable from the he he you know he you know after he died and but during his life, but certainly after he died, was a period in which Christianity was being seen more and more as repressive and old fashioned and restrictive. And 
because this is partly due to Crowley, but the sexual revolution and all the rest of it involved a rejection of Christian values. But what, what do people replace it with? And particularly if, if, if it's just a rejection, then that's already a negative identification. So they're naturally primed by pushing against something. They're going, naturally going to get pushed back into the, 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 the shadow or the inverse image of that, which is occultism and Crowleyanity. So it, it's like you've got a whole generation or several generations um, who are, like I say, primed through disillusionment and through negative identification with Christianity for for Crowleyanity. Right. right. Yeah, it's important. I mean, that's the '60s, right? I mean, Crowley himself said that he thought that the crown and the era of the crown and conquering child, child symbolized by Horace, was going to be the birth of that child was the '60s, and I think he was correct. You know. Actually anticipated that with Leary and all those guys, Leary Huxley. Right, and now we're at this time where we're seeing. Well, I don't know what what, what we're seeing exactly, but whatever was happening in the sixties, this this kind of orgy, this socially engineered orgy, really of right. um, self. Uh, what would it be? Self worship, really, like individuality the celebration of individuality and individualism um uh, uh, like this we ha we have the next iteration it seems now with the whole identity politics yes uh lgbt and everything else where uh, which again it's like with the counterculture it was very clear that occultism was was a central thread to countercultural values right with new age astrology etc with identity politics and the modern social justice warriors and uh, liberal progressives today, it's not it's not obvious because they're more atheistic, they're more secular. But I think it's a set. I think occultist values and ideology are, are also central to the this present social movement. Oh, I think so. And I mean, you can tie this back to to Crowley. Somebody sent me a very interesting article kind of tying Crowley's identification of himself as a kind of an androgyne as, you know, very, um, very similar to, you know, to this modern day, modern day ideals. I'm trying to find this article, but, uh, androgyne, right? Yeah. I mean, right. So, so transhumanism, yeah, post-genderism. Post-genderism. Yeah, exactly. Right. Um, let me see if I can find this article. So it's, very, it's, it's actually an OTO article. It's an older because the Uranian Society that I mentioned briefly, that was uh, contemporary with Crowley, because Oscar Wilde and various other figures that were contemporaries of Crowley were part of the Uranian movement, and it was like an underground thing for homosexuals to, you know, to use as a means to get together. But that right. the idea of the third sex. Right. The name of this article is "Breaking the Binary in the New Aeon," and it's from like a polemic type thing, but. Mm. Uh, AC describes gendered, gendered characteristics and confessions, and it describes them to a past life of Crowley, described as he being a female temple prostitute named Asteris in Lieber, 415, the Paris work. There's a sort of, he mentions the word hermaphroditism, things like you were kind of, you know, uh, we're talking about like this modern age. But yeah, so it seems like Crowley. Uh, yeah. Well, it wasn't, Hor I mean, Horus was kind of an, a divine androgyne as well. I think the child Horus, 
I think I there's some right. references in Crowley's text to the divine child being androgyne. Yeah, here's Crowley writing, for the Father and the Son, the Holy Spirit is the norm, male, female, quintessential one, man being veiled in woman form. Mm, wow. I'll send you the link. By the way, how did you come across Ernst Schertl? Oh, good question. I don't remember, because I didn't actually get the book, but I, I found the quote somehow. But that was, a, that was an interesting thing, because I included that in... Uh, my book, Children of the Beast, Shirtle's, uh, the book Hitler owned of Shirtle, where he well, underlined probably, all that stuff. That's probably how I came across it. Yeah, it might have been from my book. But yeah. that's, that's an interesting kind of piece because that book, Crowley's book is Magic Theory and Practice. And I think Shirtle's book was Magic Theory and Action or something. Like it's almost a, it was, it was written 20 years before Mag, Crowley's Magic and Theory and Practice, but very similar. A lot of interesting ideas, but it was one of the books from Hitler's library that's still still extant. So, do you put credence in the idea that Crowley was advising Hitler? Not really, but I do think that there was some overlap. I think that they were there. Crowley was in Germany from thirty to thirty-three, as as Hitler made his way to the chancellery, becoming chancellor of Germany, and. Uh, you know, OTO was a, and Crowley became the head of the OTO in 25. The OTO was a German secret society. Hitler and the top groups of the Nazis were, were occultists. They really weren't Christians. And so I think that their ideas, we know that the Book of Law was translated into German. Uh, after Crowley died, the head of the OTO was a German guy. His name escapes me, but I do believe that there's a, a uh, confluence of those ideas there and a lot of some of the stuff that Hitler said was very occultist and looks like sounds like the book of the law where he flat out says success is thy proof right mm -hmm. and you just basically it? believe it what's that does he use that yeah, yeah I mean Hitler says that he says it when I think in one of the things success is your is your uh proof he did so it's straight out of the book of the law some of these scrolly Hitler statements so I think um, it's highly likely that Hitler had the Book of the Law for sure, because he, he was. Well, we know that they're like, and I mean, it was uh, who was the head of the SS? Uh, Himmler. Himmler was the head of the SS. They, they found that he has a he had a twelve thousand book black magic library. So hmm. you know these guys, in, you know he's in Babelsberg Castle <clears throat> with the Black Sun insignia swastika. So these guys are heavy duty occultists. Um, German occultist. So it's not outside of the realm of possibility that, that Hitler was that. And, and Hitler uh, dedicated Mein Kampf to a guy who was a known occultist, right? It was, uh, and then he said, I've, I've given Hitler the tools to take over Germany. Um, I, you know, Hitler dances, I play the tin, right? Yeah. So, so the notion that He's actually being held by Crowley. And Crowley actually said after Hitler died, he says, before Hitler, I am, right? Yeah. You ever remember that statement he made? Yeah, yeah, after Jesus. Right? So, so it's after Abraham. Jesus saying, before Abraham, I am. So, yeah, yeah. Um, yeah it's like Well, I know, yeah, I know Hitler, is, I mean, Crowley aspired to, he wanted people to think he had been an influence on Hitler, for right. sure. Um, well, you know, there were strange things he did. He predicted these world cataclysmic world wars. He was at the... Um, Cleopatra's spire in London with his sidekick 
you know, saying, you know, if you don't adopt the book of the law, you're going to have a, a cataclysmic war. Um, he was involved in, in talking to uh, Ian Fleming about the arrival of Hess in Northern England and sent his, sent a letter to Fleming saying, you know, I'd be happy to talk with him. You know, if you want my references, he provided references. So there's a very strong current of Crowley kind of talking to these, these, you know, well-known figures. Did you see that Douglas Rushkoff graphic novel, Adolf and Alistair? I did not, but I've, 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 I've seen some pictures of it. And the Rushkoff is, I mean, he's kind of a important intellectual here in the States. I know. I met him in Mexico, actually, but I didn't, didn't spend much time with him. Um, and I haven't read the graphic novel either, but I know that it has Crowley in the heroic role and Hitler in the, the villainous role, even if it's a bit more nuanced than that. If you look at, if you put them side by side, you can say that uh, Crowley is the ideologue and Hitler is the politician putting the same ideas into practice. Uh, slave shall serve. Crowley, I mean, Hitler makes a slave state, right? People just slaving for him. Uh, an elite running, an aristocratic elite running over the masses. You could call the Nazi party that elite uh, domineering. The, bio the scientific breeding of man, and that was kind of Crowley's idea of the Lebensborn. And, I mean, Hitler's idea of the Lebensborn and the master race and all this stuff like that. So, so, I mean, it's, so, I mean, I'm sure many Salamites really do see themselves as the hidden aristocracy or at least aspire to that. But I think many don't. Many just practice the, the Crowley magic, Salima magic, whatever, because uh, they want their own power. It's a transformation, all the rest of it. And if so, then they would they would have to believe that they can separate the the rituals and the philosophy from the ideology because crowley as you're saying he his occult philosophies and methodologies were all intertangled intertwined with with an ideology of aristocracy yeah no no doubt no doubt the slave shall serve leave your 77 you know there's a top and he you know the thing about crowley is you never really mixed with middle or lower classes he was always associating with moneyed people or people with from the high schools he only yeah. really wanted to recruit from two schools in, in england oxford and cambridge that was it yeah so, i can't imagine any but the most ignorant of crowley aficionados actually trying to claim that crowley was sympathetic to the working class or was any you know was that kind of character at all no way was, not even there's nothing in his character or his writings that cared about that. It was always the slave shall serve. Lever 77. Hmm. You know? And that comes from the Book of Law. That's another quote of the Book of Law. So, so I mean, he, he told people, I think he wrote in another thing, it was a commentary to the Book of the Law where he said he wanted to give the people the quiet wisdom of cattle. You know, hmm. just keep them like little cattle and, and shear their, what do you say, shear their hides and food for the elite. That's all that the people were worth, you know. So it's pretty nothing to do. Here's another quote from Crowley. Yeah. Have nothing to do with the muck of the mire. Take the diamonds and polish them. That was his opinion of people. So you're supposed to find these diamonds. The stars. And, yeah. Yeah. And yet every man and woman is a star, I suppose, is, is how people ignore all that other stuff and just say, well, look, he's saying we're all equal. 
I don't know. I just don't. I mean, I think that people can impute those, their own ideas and perceptions into another philosophy, uh, even if it's not there. So, you know, they can say these things about Nazism that aren't there or Marxism or, you know. Well, do you, I mean, because I used to, as you, as you know, you probably know, that's in the book anyway, I, I used to put a lot of stock in the book of the law. Um, I didn't, it wasn't my Bible, but the Bible wasn't my Bible either. I had various texts that I considered to be really profound, sacred texts. And, but, and the book of the law was one of them. Um, and, and so at this point, although we're on the same page really in terms of how di- diabolical Crowley and, and his output is, uh, I still feel that the book of the law is a very profound text. So how do you feel about it? I think it's a profound text. If somebody's saying they're receiving information from Satan sitting over his corner in Cairo, Egypt, and people are looking at that book of the law and being influenced by it, by put, you know, pecking the eyes out of Muhammad and all that other stuff, I would say it's pretty profound. It's a pretty profound statement that confirms the cosmology that Christians believe in, the, the cosmology of Ephesians 6.12 that we fight not against fleshly things. We fight against powers, principalities, things in the air, you know, all these other things. So you see that Crowley is within that time, that frame of a Christian outlook where he's actually not just communicating with Satan, but other entities, the magician, what was it? Was it the magician? There was all these other people, the Alamantra working where he sees this alien being. So for me, a very profound book very profound very satanic uh book that you know i see it in so many of my other talks about crowley confirms the validity of this kind of spiritual outlook that christians have that it's not all just like wine and roses there actually are evil spirits and evil influences in the world just Mm -hmm. like it says in the lord's prayer deliver us from evil so um you know, there's some arguments you, I think you mentioned in the book, a guy came out and critiqued the book of the law as not being legitimate, right? That, uh, that, and then there's, Crowley was actually on his way back from, from uh, Asia. So he had already been through Cairo and on his way back, he supposedly has this profound event where he sees the stele of revealing in, in something 666. And he's in there and his wife says they are waiting. So he, he gets the bull's blood and pr- provokes a ritual and this being that's behind him gives him the most profound, so-called in his life, the most profound experience he had in 1904. And he takes this received message and doesn't do anything with it for six years, right? Mm-hmm. He, didn't noticed, he didn't notice its import or impact. Well, he tried to get rid of it in his own right. account, didn't he? he, he didn't. You can see the original copy. It looks like automatic writing you know there's very few emendations made to the text it looks like he just spit them out for three days right but that was kind of Crowley's writing anyway because he very rarely he was such a talented literateur or prose writer that not a lot of his writing shows changes or stuff like that but although there, there's records of him going back through and, and fixing books errata within books so the validity of the book of law it's questionable, you know, but I do, if you look at this other stuff, his holy books, these other workings, it's clear that he's trying to receive or in the process of receiving information. He's doing similar things with Newberg that Kelly and Dee did, this whole, you know, scrying 
with a shoe stone in a hat. So it's not outside the realm of possibility that somebody who covets information or in connection with discarnate entities is that is occurring. So. Because you know that I, I tried to do my own book of the law once. How did it work? Well, I set up a, a, a period. It's, it wasn't quite as tidy as I try as I wanted to do like the, exactly the same days because my birthday's on the 7th of April and then the 8th, 9th and 10th right. that he supposedly received the book of the law so I always took that as a sign that somehow I was you know the book of the law was was, was central to my own you were the one who comes after me yeah yeah that, that kind of thing right you and about a hundred other occultists a thousand hundred thousand, thousand yeah yeah anyway uh Basically, I tried to create the environment. I timed it in such a way that I would be able to receive something. And I wrote this thing called the Book of the Adversary with three books and the numbers and all that. It was an imitation of the Book of the Law. Um, and Kenneth Grant read it and he, and he praised it, although he's, he's, he called it an, an initiatic vision. But he also criticized it. He said it, was, it seemed to be cluttered a bit by biblical imagery or something like that. I forget what he said. Um, but anyway, I mean, it, it, something did come through me. That doesn't mean it came from any, I don't know, anywhere other than my own consciousness, but it definitely was qualitatively different from uh, from other things I've written. And it, it starts with with Satan, and then it's Christ, and then it's the third book is what I called Abrax, uh, Astaris back then, because of this Thulean I was in touch with. But Astaris is basically Abraxas, the two-in-one god. Right. Yep, yep. I had these three books where it starts as dark as can be, and then it goes to light, and then it's the kind of fusion of the two. But anyway, I mean, it's... It a, sounds like something the process would write. Christ, yeah, yeah, devil, yeah. Satan, whatever. Yeah, yeah, for sure. But, you know, back to the book of the law, I, and I haven't read it for a long time, but I know that the first book, in which every man and a woman is a star is, is in the first couple of lines is is a very positive text apparently anyway i mean there's nothing i don't think there's anything dark. it doesn't get as nasty i mean the last one is the representation of horus so there are yeah. three gods it's knew it um uh, it. horus right had it. Good, had it so the sun the stars that's the sky and then horus so yeah. it's the third part is really where things get nasty right yeah it, it gets progressively darker and yeah it's really nasty in the third part right but I mean, the other thing that, that, that vouches for its validity is that Crowley was fairly young, 28, 29, kind of a younger guy. Mm -hmm. I mean, does he have that, that broad of a frame of reference? Does he know those words? I don't know, you know? Cabs on kept. there's all kinds of strange things that, that come out of it. Did he know that he was going to call his new religion Thelema and Thelemites? I don't know. The Levens, you know, the the you know, numbers 11 in there. So he knew the, the validity or the numerical significance of the number 11. Yeah, probably, probably through the Golden Dawn stuff. If he had read that book, Numbers, that uh, one of the Golden Dawn followers. But he was know. dictated it by Rose, wasn't he? He said that a being stood over his shoulder and dictated it to him. Being oh, a that's power. right, that's right. But yeah. Rose was the yeah. initial contactee. Yeah, yeah. He said she, she went into a trance and said they're waiting. Right, right. But he and then, yeah. but it, the 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 structure of the book emulates the Stella that he saw in Stella in the 
666 in what was the Bulak Museum back then. Now it's the Egyptian Museum. Yeah. So if you look at the still of Revealing, you can see Newt, Hadit, and Horus are all there. So Newt is this being, this woman, this representation of woman. That's the sky. So that's the that that imagery is reflected in the Book of Law. Mm. That's why at the center of the Gnostic Mass, you always see the still of Revealing. Right. Anyway, we're at about an hour. We're about ninety minutes. Do you have? Uh, Anything you'd like to finish up with or anything about the book? Um, well, I was going to say something, but I don't know if it'd be a short. If it would be a short it. We have to, it doesn't but, matter. Take your time. But, I mean, one of my, one of the things I've been wondering through this conversation is, because there are, there are definitely people who, who admire Crowley and, and see him as a, a positive influence and a positive and a source of wisdom. And, and they are from the same people who say, there's no way that, they'll accept a few personality flaws, but they certainly wouldn't accept that he was committing child ritual sacrifice or anything truly horrendous like oh, that. Anything, anything that was truly worthy of the name beast, right? Um, so they're clearly gonna be very resistant to this possibility. But one thing I wonder is, is uh, about people who who would be somewhat resistant, but that if they were to take it on, um, rather than rejecting Crowley, would they end up rejecting their own moral abhorrence to the things that they would have to accept about Crowley? If you see what I mean, yeah, and I think so. It happens in cults. It's the psychology yeah. of previous investment. If you've invested in a system for long enough. Right and it's central enough to your sense of meaning, as you start to discover the truth about it, rather than reject the philosophy or the, or the guru, right. you, will, you will embrace those behaviors. Right. No, it's a good point. I mean, that's probably why many of these people who are Crowley devotees or high occultists do not want to reveal this or deny it because they want the people to get invested into the system. And then, oh, by the way, yeah, you're supposed to be a secret evil to the world, and we do drink blood and the cakes of light, and menstrual fluid and semen. Yeah, and yeah. oh, you know, you're cool but, with that, right? right? But but the, the context is it's all for the greater good, because right. You... So it's a greater good of you, and it's for communion of all of us, and yeah. you know, blah blah blah. One of the interesting things of this conversation that I have to ask for you is you made that statement that people come into cruelly coming from a rigid christian background but in your case you came from a atheistic semi-socialistic background to curly good point so that's uh yeah yeah so i was primed in a, a different way in a more positive as it wasn't a negative identification for me with curly it was uh, it was just very compatible already with my values when you when you got into curly was it a self-directed interest in Crowley or did you find somebody who said hey I got a bunch of friends and you know, you uh, it, was both. it was both it was a combination because first of all I went from Castaneda to Crowley but not in a deep way because Crowley as you know it's pretty hard to get into and I started with the wrong place I started with Moonchild and the confessions it yeah. was really it's just hard Moonchild is really almost it's very hard to read yeah so so I, I dipped my toes in Crowley but it wasn't until I met somebody who was a street shaman who was younger than me and on Hay Ashbury of all places, uh, who gave me LSD and kind of initiated me in a very gonzo street way into 
deeper mysteries, let's say. And he he referred to Crowley a lot. In fact, the first in the first moments of he met me, he started talking about how Crowley and Hitler had created AIDS as a means to transform the species or something like that. And what uh, circle? What year was that? That was 1992. Wait, oh, wow. no, no, 1990. Sorry, 1990. Yeah. Anyway, and he and one of the things he did was. Uh, he read to me from Crowley, well, I only did this once actually, but it's an example while I was asleep and he woke me up by reading a passage from the Book of Lies. So I actually woke up hearing him reading Crowley in my ears. So, I mean, that that's quite a sinister example. Most of it wasn't like that, but the definitely he definitely was introducing, introducing me to uh, Crowley in a new way. I ended up believing he was a reincarnation of Crowley for a while. Partly, I don't know if I told you this, I told somebody this, because he told me that Crowley repented in, in his, his last few hours. And I was impressed by that, because I knew that Crowley was, you know, uh, had done some bad shit even back then. Uh, so, but I, there was no way he could have known that, and I believed him at the time, so I thought, well, he must have been there. Now, there's no evidence of that at the end. I mean, I think the last words reportedly are, I am perplexed. That was it before he uh before he died mm. supposedly um well that's inter interesting sorry so you never really made your way into like the oto or anything did you join the oto oh, god no what, what i had what happened with me bill was was even uh, more insidious in certain ways was that it was this whole thing and then as i write about a bit in vice of kings a ser series of incidents that made me convinced that i was actually being initiated by you know by the universe itself so like finding the book of Toth when I was down and out in Morocco and I had nothing else to read uh, in a tiny library where the odds of finding it, any occult book never mind the book of Toth were, were close to zero uh, and so I immersed myself in that book then getting a copy of the tarot as and it being the only way for me to make a living while I was living on the street so the whole Crowley thing just it got me it's what they say about initiation you want to break the student down and then implant the new right so you, know, you were you the breaking down process had already occurred yeah. so you were ready to be yeah. new software the new ideology was ready to be dropped in that's right and i embodied it i was reading the tarot using his tarot cards and yeah i was i was i was you were in. in how many readings when you were on the street giving readings how many readings a day would you give um, it was in the night time, it was this nighttime thing, the fairground, uh, a carnival, probably a, between six and 15, something oh, like that. That's a significant amount. That's interesting. Yeah, I that's... must have read, um, I probably, probably read tarot cards for somebody probably two, three hundred times or something. Oh, remarkable. That was, uh, that's what uh, one of Crowley's, this guy, Grady Mc, uh, McMurtry, did at pleasure fairs, you know, the Renaissance fairs that they have through the States. He, that's how they found new converts was reading the tarot and he would put on the whole grand vizier you know headdress and stuff with the diadem on front right interesting and occasionally i would get approached by a christian who would tell me i was doing the work of the devil and i would i would regard them with utter scorn little did i know he <laughs> might have been right well that's a good way to end Jason Horsley, Vice of Kings, available on Amazon. Or what you wanted to 
people to go get it at a website, right? Uh, well, they can go to my website. It's the easiest way because right. I hope they'll go there anyway. So that's auticulture, as in A-U-T-I, culture.com. And then in, in any page except the homepage, there's a link to the publisher's website. If you do get it on Amazon, if anyone, I'd ask that they review it as well. Because yeah. if you're going to use Amazon, at least let's make it work. Right. So auticulture, A-U-T-I-C-U-L-T-U-R.com. Jason Horsley, The Vice of Kings, How Socialism, Occultism, and the Sexual Revolution Engineered a Culture of Abuse. Thank you very much. Thanks, Bill. All right. Let's hopefully, let's hope this records. I'm going to stop yeah.